VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, November the 7th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. You'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone to give us a call, get in the queue, and on the air. So, if you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial is 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So, early last week, or late the week before, we had a fellow named Warren Power on the show. Warren's one of the organizers of the Rock Solid Dart Tour, bringing a bunch of professionals to the province for a tour across uh, Cornerbrook, Gander, Marystown, here in St. John's to wrap it up. So, it looks like it's off to a rousing start. So, when they began at Marble Mountain, of course, not, not Cornerbrook, Steadybrook, Newfoundland and Labrador, there was a fellow named Jacob Taylor from Forrester's Point, a community of about 200 people. He took on one of the real name brand dart players from the UK that's part of this tour. I fellow named Darren Webster, who I've seen play many a tournament. He's got a big load of titles as a professional darts corporation player. So here's Taylor, who during the pandemic had an opportunity to play in more and more tournaments virtually, what have you, picked up a sponsorship, been playing for some 30 years, and here he is in a packed, uh, packed facility at Marble Mountain, and he takes out Darren Webster six legs to five. Terrific stuff. Taylor went on to make the final, but he lost to Canadian Jeff Smith, who was one of the two dart players representing Canada at the World Cup of Darts. So no slouch there. So just as a reminder, not only Darren Webster in the fold and Campbell and Smith from Canada, but also uh, Andrew Gilding, the 19th ranked player in the world. He's part of this tour. So they open up on the 5th at Marble Mountain. Last night they played at the Albatross and Gander. Uh, tonight, Marystown Hotel and Conference Center. And then on the 8th and the 9th playing at the Capitol Hotel. So each, uh, each setup, each day has the same uh, structure. So from 1 to 4 p.m. on the day of the showtime, spectators get to meet the players, get autographs, play against one of the professionals if you're into it. 7 to 10, they play the Premier League format. Eight players using the first, uh, first to six-leg match. So it consists of a quarterfinal, semi, and then a final. So Jacob Taylor takes out Darren Webster. Fantastic stuff. And this is a lovely story. You know, for the players who are into good at darts, they throw a copious amount of arrows each and every every day. Talk about dedication and there's one other discipline that requires not only the grace and talent but dedication to say the very least in the competitive world of ballet. So as Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, we throw the darts and we dance. Congratulations on 13-year-old Kira O'Keefe. So she's up at Canada's National Ballet School in Toronto. I mean, I have a, a family that are friends of ours. They had a young dancer in the family. This was, you know, maybe 10-15 years ago competitive and was driven and dedicated auditioned many many times for a spot at canada's national ballet school never made it but i guarantee you they spent some load of money on dance studios and the young lady was a hundred percent dedicated and kira o'keefe passed an audition uh, brought up to toronto over the summer what is an extended audition and has been given a spot at the national ballet school so that's absolutely brilliant 13 years of age away from her friends and her family her phone keeps her close to uh, the aforementioned and so each and every year you have to re-audition. She's open, of course, to land a spot with a company to inspire other dancers and, as she says, to chase her dreams. So if Kara O'Keefe and her family are listening this morning, bravo. Bravo for absolutely sure. So good stuff. All right. Moving from the grace and beauty to the brutality and the science of professional boxing. It was on this date in 1988 that golden boy Donnie Lalonde from Win Winnipeg, his nickname came from the fact there's a golden statue atop Manitoba's legislative building in Winnipeg, which sees boxing hometown. 
Lalonde was a very accomplished fighter and eventually got a shot at a massive title. So on this date, he was uh, lined up to fight Sugar Ray Leonard at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas. He already held the WBC Light Heavyweight Championship. There was another title on the line that night, the newly created WBC Super Middleweight Championship. Lalonde had to move down in weight from 175 pounds to make weight at 168. There's always a concern going into these fights when you have to drop weight very rapidly. So Lalonde, his purse that night, $6 million, biggest payday of his career, and of course up against one of the legendary fighters of a generation. Lalonde is kind of an awkward guy, and he had Leonard in uh, trouble a few times. In the fourth round with a right hand, uh, hit Leonard on the top of the head, knocked him down. It was only the second time in his career Leonard had been on the canvas. In the ninth, Lalonde hurt Leonard again with a solid right to the chin, but all of a sudden, Leonard hits him with one, gets him up against the ropes, and in, in Leonard fashion, the flurry of fists got him in trouble. Eventually knocked him down with a left hook. Lalonde got up, but it wasn't before long he was on his back, and he got knocked out by Sugar Ray Leonard. Uh, Sugar Ray Leonard on this date in 1988. Leonard won his fourth and fifth titles that night against Canadian boxing legend Danny Golden Boy Lalonde. Okay, keep going. So we knew the, the fact of the matter was the province was going to be bringing in outside independent consultants to evaluate the wind to hydrogen to ammonia projects. Not just World Energy GH2, but here's one question I would have. Is any of the consultancy work done to the price tag of about $462,000? Will any of it have to be replicated to deal with the other four packages or proponents that are out there? Because World Energy gets all the attention, period. But we also have the Exploits Value Renewable Energy Corporation, ABO Wind, uh, Out of Come by Chance, and yes, Pattern Energy at uh, the Port of Argentia. So they brought in these three outside companies to go through technical services, financial advice, and a fairness advisor. You know, with an industry that is new, Minister Parsons simply says that the staff were not technically up to the valuation task here, given the very new project and industry that's being proposed. Okay. So in the world of fairness services, they hired Optimus SBR Incorporated. And this was to, as they say, to ensure an open and transparent process. Some of that driven, of course, because of the infamous salmon fishing trip to Labrador, Premier Fury and his father, George Fury, at John Risley's Fishing Lodge. Eventually, the Commissioner for Legislative Standards says there was no conflict of interest, but the optics were what the optics were. So they brought in the company for that fairness issue. Then the other two companies, Ernst & Young Orenda Corporate Finance and Power Advisory LLC, the tech and financial analysis, you know, from the first and the second stages. As the minister has said uh, several times in this program and in the general public, is that there was no fiscal framework that they could mimic anywhere in the world. They go on to say that people are worried about the speed with which these processes are unfolding and the speed with which eventual green lights may indeed be in the offing. He points to New Brunswick and their thirst to be in on the ground floor, points to the northeastern United States and some of the operations or proposals off of their coast. A couple of have been scrapped, to be honest. So there is going to be some lingering wonder about the business model, which is not necessarily my primary concern at this stage, even though my federal tax dollars and a generous amount of them are available to these proponents. So they bring in the outside consultants. Big question for me, and I knew this was happening, didn't know what the price tag would eventually be, 
but will any of this type of consultancy work need to be redone for other projects or are we just where we are? And when it comes to the fiscal framework for these projects, just as a refresher, look, the environmental impact will be what it is. And for many people, that's their primary concern. And you're, if you want to echo those or re-echo those on the show, we can do it. So they'll talk about the jobs and construction phase and the permanent long-time jobs and the economic upside of some of these projects. So Crown Land, of course, will be leased. 3.5% annual, annual charge of the market value of the lands. Annual charge of 7% of the market value of the leased lands. Then the wind electricity tax. 4,000 per megawatt on installed capacity. Then there's an annual charge payable at in-service. Water use fee and water royalty. A fee of only $500 per 1,000 cubic meters of water licensed and used. $50 per 1,000 meters cubic meters of water licensed and not used, applicable to all the hydrogen facilities. And then we get into the water royalty. So it's pretty low if you're talking about the precious commodity that is fresh water, and you can offer your thoughts or your sentiments on that front. The water royalty, the trick will be, and the concern many will have, is that the payments begin after the proponent recover their cost in full. Not to say that there's going to be any financial or uh, accounting shenanigans, but that's how it goes. It's not no payments until cost recovery. Payable based on the calculated residual value of the water. And it does have an escalator. So in uh, the first rate, it's 10% applied after they recover one-time cost recovery. Second rate is 20% applied after two times cost recovery. And the third and highest tier, tier three, is 25% applied after cost recovery times three. So consultants, as usual, part of the conversation with governments. In some form, maybe, maybe sometimes you need outside eyes, whether it be for independence and fairness and technical savvy and financial advice or financial analysis, but does any of this have to be replicated again down the line? Don't know. You want to take it on? Let's go. But of course, it's not the only project. It's the only one that's currently in the churn for this type of evaluation, but the other three that were put forward by the province and Pattern Energy at the Port of Argentia, they're all working on their model. I imagine, first off, they're working on their capital. Anyway, we're going to talk about it. Let's go. So we know that the country's premiers met in Halifax for the first minister's meeting. Prime Minister Trudeau did say that unlike former Prime Minister Stephen Harper, he would be in attendance more than uh, Stephen Harper was, but of course he wasn't there again this time. Not good. And lots to be said about the Prime Minister and his future and what it means to his party at this moment. You don't generally get a whole lot of consensus coming out of these meetings. We very much do have regional disparity and regional spats in this country, even if it's simply about the geographical issues across the country from coast to coast to coast. But on a couple of fronts, they are united. We've heard from small municipalities and municipalities in Newfoundland and Labrador the difficulty that some of these smaller communities have in the, either the human resources, the time, the ability to compile all the data to apply for monies inside the $4 billion Canada Housing Accelerator Fund. And it's always Quebec, man. So while the housing minister, Sean Fraser, is signing bilateral deals with some of the country's big cities, for instance, Calgary, Hamilton, London, Vaughan, Ontario, Halifax, City of St. John's has gone back to apply, given Mr. Fra Minister Fraser's uh, thoughts that we weren't ambitious enough. Okay, then. 
but as opposed to every other municipality across the country trying to sign these deals with Ottawa, the province of Quebec was absolutely able to broker a $900 million deal, and so all of the cities and towns in Quebec just have to deal with their own provincial government versus everywhere else in the country, municipalities left up to their own devices. I mean, it's just classic, right? You know, whether it be how the equalization formula is structured and other issues, and yes, now this housing accelerator fund in the province able to control their own destiny versus all of our other communities, cities and towns across the country, at this stage, having to scramble to try to come up with the information and the arduous task of filling out an application for access to the exact same pot of money. So they're all on side on that front, and they're right. Then they move off to the carbon tax. Okay. So, the carbon tax carve-out for three years on carbon tax on home heating fuels, it's absolutely a nationwide opportunity, if indeed you heat your home with home heating oil. But the fact of the matter is, it really does predominantly impact Atlantic Canada. We punch way above our weight in the usage of home heating oil. On the average across the Canada, across Canada, only 3% of homes use home heating oil. So, I get when they talk about it being unfair. Look, in any of these types of approach to taxation, carbon tax or otherwise, there really does need to be a fair and equitable landscape right across the country. So whether it be Premier Smith or Premier Mo or whoever else that has taken the federal government to task, on this one, they're not necessarily wrong. Number one, and I've been saying this for a long time, and now people are calling for it. There was another vote in the House of Commons about exactly this. For necessities of life, groceries, and to heat our home, there just simply shouldn't be tax on any of the products. Whether you heat your home via hydroelectricity, a central heat pump, natural gas, coal-fired generation, there can always be incentives put in place to move away from some of these dirtier options, uh, a.k.a. coal. But we shouldn't have to pay tax to heat our home. No, we just shouldn't. Right, That will indeed relieve uh, financial shortfalls, but we can't have Canadians freezing. We can't have Canadians un- unable to afford and to take their prescribed medication. So some of these issues, consensus at the Premier's level is a good thing. Right Now, there's going to be a joint press conference today between uh, BC Premier Eby and, Prime, and pardon me, Premier Fury. BC Premier talked about the fact that they've long had a carbon tax in place. Population has grown dramatically. Emissions have not. So I don't know what the tone or tenor or the content of this joint press conference will be. And he's also sporting. He loves a central heat pump T-shirt. There are questions part of the country about the effectiveness of a heat pump, given some of the cold temperatures that would be vastly different in some of the countries north versus other parts of the country. So some consensus coming out of that, which is pretty interesting. Another one of the issues they were trying to tackle was healthcare recruitment. No real details have been offered. You know, we've heard about the spat between our province and Saskatchewan, aggressively recruiting in person and all the rest of it. But was there any consensus about how the provinces will behave or how they will act? with passive versus aggressive recruitment. I don't know, but it'd be nice to get some of those additional details. And in the world of political theatrics, yes, the vote in the House of Commons to uh, scrap carbon tax apply to all home heating uh, sources. And Ken McDonald, who, of course, voted against his party a couple of times on this issue, voted with the party this time against the conservative motion. And he was heckled, you know, called flip-flopper, and he had a wry smile. And then he's accused of flipping the bird across the, uh, across the aisle to the opposition benches. He said it was a two-finger scratch, and we'll wait for the Speaker Greg Fergus to adjudicate. But anyway, if you saw the video, you can offer your thoughts.
Healthcare announcement yesterday here in the province. During the work to come up with the health accord, it was clear that there was no real formal program or policies regarding the frail elderly. Not all, uh, not all elderly or seniors are frail, but we didn't have a policy. We know that the population of 65 years and older in this province represents about 20% of the province's population. So now they're establishing what they call centers of excellence in aging. They're going to start out in Cornerbrook with the new Western Memorial Regional Hospital, which is set to open sometime next year, move it on to the Health Sciences Center, and then curiously, say it'd also be a center of excellence at the yet-to-be-built St. Clair's Mercy Hospital. Anyway. So 90 beds of acute care at St. Clair's, senior rehabilitation, restorative care, friendly services, revamp emergency care at the center. We've heard many, many stories about seniors' difficulty in navigating the emergency room setting. So, okay. When you think about the population, the demographics here in the province, it is truly remarkable that we have not had a geriatrics medicine training program at Memorial University that's coming. Good. There are only four trained geriatricians in the entire province. So now $5 million over the next five years to allow physicians to train in geriatrics. What we can only hope in addition to these centers of excellence, we need more and more conversation. We need more and more uh, data and whatever the committee that was struck to look at long-term care facilities and personal care facilities, we need more of a provincial and a federal conversation regarding aging in place. And yes, these geriatric centers of excellence might be an excellent idea. It's certainly a good idea to allow more doctors to be trained in that discipline, right? 20% of the population, only four trained geriatricians in the province, so that's the big healthcare announcement from yesterday. A couple of very quick ones before we go. Canada has a competition problem. We know it to be true. Grocery stores, telecom, insurance, there's no end to the competition problem and productivity problem. The CRTC has now put forward a ruling to allow smaller, independent competitors to use the fiber optic networks owned by the big players in Ontario and Quebec. I mean, we know what the big three mean. The control on price, we pay way too much for data services and or cell phone services in this country. So now the CRTC is mandating internet rates by 10%, uh, pardon me, some uh, wholesale internet, internet rates by 10%, allowing more access to and cost protection for the small players. Hopefully that competition will lead to lower prices. There's a, here's a quote coming from them. There's been a significant competitive decline in Ontario and Quebec, where independent internet providers currently serve 40% fewer customers than they did just two years ago. So obviously, good move by the CRTC. Last one of this, an opportunity for families that have grade 10 or 11 students at home. Skills Canada, Newfoundland and Labrador is now beginning the Youth Apprentice Summer Employment Program. So students in grade 10 and 11 you get to work with a seven-week summer placement in the demand trade centers. You're going to be able to work towards your apprenticeships, presented for professional peer development, and of course, networking opportunities. So if you're a parent of a grade 10 or 11 and you'd like to avail of the seven-week program for the Youth Apprentice Summership Employment Program, go to Skills Canada Newfoundland and Labrador's webpage and follow along. That'd be a good opportunity. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. Barry Hiscock is in the queue to talk about heat pumps. And then our annual conversation with the editor of Doyle's Almanac of Newfoundland and Labrador, Robert Doyle. He's also there. And then we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this morning on the top of the board on line number one. Good morning, Barry. You're on the air. Yes, sir. How are you this morning, bud? Doing okay. How about you? Good. This is my first time calling. Welcome to the show. Uh, I just wanted to uh, touch uh, touch base on heat pumps. 
I put in a mini, what you call a mini split, about uh, I'm going to say six or seven years ago, instead of uh, electric heat, because I burn wood for primary heat, right? Anyway, insurance dropped me. Apparently, are you there? Yeah. Okay. Apparently, you got to have for primary heat, you either got to have electric heat. Or all heat. That's right. Yeah, you can't have okay. that on a standalone as a primary source. You're right. So here's the government now paying you or paying the homeowners to take out an oil furnace to put in a mini split. Okay. No, it's to put in a central heat pump. They're similar but different. Okay. Okay. That's that, yes. That's different. That's uh, a central heat pump. But uh, I just wanted to give the uh, homeowners a heads up. Like if if they think they're going to put in a mini split uh, for for heat. Uh, like some people still burn wood or, or, or whatever, don't have electric heat, don't have all heat. Because uh, at the time, I never had enough power, I don't think, uh, for the electrical panel to put in electric heat. I'm in an older home. So I put in a mini split, and insurance dropped me because I had never had primary heat. I was just It's a little bit confusing because adding a complementary source, how did that justify being dropped from your insurance? Because you had insurance when you heated with nothing but wood, so hey, I think at the time they changed. I think intact, intact mud bottom out or something. Okay. They might have changed. They might have changed brokers. Whatever happened, and and that's what happened to me. So I had to go to another insurance company, which I I got insurance with. But I found it pretty pretty uh, pretty awkward to uh, to be dropped by insurance for for being with when I'm probably 15 years or more. And I either had to put in electric baseboard heaters or an oil furnace. That's right. Yeah, people have to be careful here because some of these programs, they sound terrific if you're such so inclined, right, to move off oil yeah. or whatever your, your thoughts are here. But you need an assessment done. So with the companies that do it, that's the best place to start. You know, you can go to the Government of Canada, Government of Newfoundland Labrador's website, and talk about the pots of money and the Greener Home Fund or the Greener Canada Greener Homes Program or the $157 million here or this new central uh, heat pump uh, program from the federal government. But what you need is an assessment done. You have to have yeah. someone who understands the technology, understands the configuration of your home, the age of your home as to what's best for you. Because some of these things might not work, work for your period. And it may indeed jeopardize your insurance. So if you are keen to take advantage of some of these pots of money, do yourself the favor. Because some of it requires a home assessment and inspection before you can be eligible for it. So do exactly that. Don't just say, well, you know what? Mini split's good for me. I've had the wood stove, which has uh, helped me all these years, but the mini split might uh, allow me to cool my home in the summertime, which is the number one feature for me, my, my mini split. Get the assessment done. Don't be caught with your pants down. Know exactly what you're getting yourself into. Yeah, because everybody, like a homeowner's a heat pump is a heat pump. They don't know, uh, like, you're, like you're talking about a central, central heat pump. That's that's a totally different animal altogether, right? Yep. Besides of, uh, compared to a mini split. It is. Right, so look, the homeowners don't know really, and they're just going with the rebate, of course. And well, if they go with the rebate, they're going to put in a central heat pump, I guess, right? In this case, they will. Yep. Yes. So many splits don't uh, don't be covered under under uh, this this rebate, I guess. Not as a primary source of heat. Nope, they don't. They're gotcha. not. Gotcha. No, I never I never heard anybody talk about it. So I said I'll give uh, the homeowners a heads up on the mini splits. Well, I'm glad you called. And I've been long saying, look, it's the home inspection or assessment up front, so you know what you're doing, know what you're talking about, get the right product for your home, the age of the home, the configuration of the home. Like for instance, with mini split, I have a fairly open. Uh, 
up, upstairs. Oh, I actually live in a bungalow, but I have a, a pretty open main floor. But the mini split can work for me. But if you have, say, one of the older homes that might be, uh, quote unquote, a little bit more chopped up, it might not be of great benefit to you. So get exactly. someone who knows what they're doing to come in and have a look and give you some advice and walk you through all the programs, how to apply for them, make it as easy as possible on yourself. Yes, because I guarantee is, is, is if if they're if they're not going after the rebate, they're going to put in a mini split. Besides uh, a central heat pump, there's a big difference in price. Big difference. Uh, they're two different uh, two different animals. Yes. Yeah, no doubt about it. And there will be concerns with the average winter temperature where some people live in this country, whether or not it works for them. That's something that someone who lives where you are, who knows and understands local temperature. And I, I think some of it's exaggerated in some corners because at 8 degrees, the coefficient performance of heat pumps is generally between 2% and 5.4. So there's ways that you can assess whether or not this is working for you. If it doesn't, don't do it. Yes, exactly. Because I, I had mine in. I put in the best of the best at the time. It was a Daikin, I guess. Uh, I think it was Daikin or Daikin, they call it. Yeah. Professionally in, installed. And I never had no issue with, uh, now it might be so efficient when it's minus 20, but it still worked. You know what I mean? And that's the concern with what a primary source of heat will be. Because there are certain ways to heat your home that are a little bit more effective and reliable when it becomes extremely frigid. That's why insurance companies carve out some of these coverages because if you end up with a long cold snap where whatever you're using isn't up to the task then you have the possibility for the pipes to freeze, explode, flood the place out consequently there's an insurance complication. Same thing when it comes to fire suppression and a bunch of things so that's why they carve it out if you don't have another primary source of heat that is proven to be reliable and coverable. Exactly. Because I, I argue with them, you know, if you lose power, you got none of it. Well, I still got wood heat, but if you lose power for, for two or three days or a week, you're you're in the same boat. So it don't matter what, what you got for heat, really, unless you got a wood furnace or a wood stove. 100%. Right? Yep. Because I, I, I question why why not insure me? Like, what are you afraid of, a freeze-up or a flood or whatever, right? Yeah, it's a couple of those things. You couldn't answer me anyway. I got trapped with uh, with insurance I was with for 15 odd years. Well, I'm got you. Uh, you got picked back up by another company because we all, regardless of the premiums and the frustration associated with the exploding premiums, you need that type of coverage. We'd be lost without it. Uh, Barry, oh, good to have you on the show as a first time caller. Appreciate this. Yeah, no sweat, my buddy. Take care. You too, man. Bye bye. And that's the trick. And it's not me trying to shrug off any additional workload or requests of information from me, because if I have it, I'm happy to provide it. But the trick is, there are so many programs out there and so many pots of money that you can maybe use a lot of overlaps, too. So to ensure that you have access to as much of the money as possible and you buy the product that's going to work for you, work for your home, work for your insurance coverage, just get the companies that sell them and install them to come in, do the inspection, walk you through the entire process because that's what they do for a living. They've got people that do that and nothing but that. So when I have info to share and you know links to apply for one pot of money or another, happy to do it. But don't don't get involved unless you know exactly what you're doing based on the uh, advice of an expert, someone actually professionally working in the field. So we've given out a couple of different company numbers. Hate to be picking winners and losers on that front. And yes, there's a lag time uh, for these programs to last. Why? Because these companies are up to their neck. I mean, the popularity, whether it be installing a uh, mini split or a central heat pump or electric furnace, they're really bringing in orders hand over fist and then it's access to even some subcontractors possibly like electricians for inspections or what have you so 
pick a company that has a reputable uh, track record and there are people out there who have bought these products speak with them if they were happy enough with the company they dealt with and feel like referring you to just get them in make sure you're on the right track and away we go let's take a break to stay on track here this morning robert doyle the editor of doyle's almanac of newfoundland and labrador and of course we cannot uh, forget our good friend the science editor gus fanning part of this year's edition once again robert doyle right after this don't go away Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions. Plus, interviews with today's newsmakers. Your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays. Your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say to the editor of the 2024 Doyle's Almanac of Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Robert Doyle. Good morning, Robert. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing today? Doing okay, sir. Welcome back for our annual conversation. Yes, it's our ninth edition, so I guess our ninth annual chat. I love it. So we'll get through a couple of the different categories that are featured in the Almanac. You know, history, tradition, uh, nature, climate, and some other recipes and songs and the like. Let's start with uh, Colonel Dr. Sir Clooney McPherson. A real fascinating character. He is so yes. I mean, in um, World War One, he um, you know he was part of the Newfoundland Regiment. He was a you know physician, got involved with the regiment, went overseas in France, and he was worried about the the mustard gas that was being used uh, you know by the by the Germans, and he actually invented a a gas mask that was you know still in use today. That uh, that was quite an amazing uh, amazing invention that he had. Yeah, when you combine chlorine gas with water, it turns into hydrochloric acid. Of course, people being blinded, severe burns, lung tissue destroyed. And so what started off as the, the hypo helmet, of course, had been modernized over the years, but Clooney McPherson is just a fascinating character, no matter how you slice it. And then I know there's a, a portion uh, uh, about Sir Frederick Banting. And we talk about the prevalence of diabetes in this province and his isolating insulin. What's his connection to Newfoundland and Labrador? Yes, well, he was um, also, um, in addition to his discovery of, of insulin and how to and how to treat it, um, how to treat the you know, diabetes to the pancreas, um, he, he was also helped in, in involved in inventing a, a G suit so that the, the pilots who were flying in World War II, um, they would help them with you know going on the, on the long flights. So he was actually testing one of these G, G suits when his um, he, he hooked a ride with the American. Um, uh, Air Force, and um, actually his plane left Gander and actually crashed in Musgrave Harbor, so he actually died here in, in Newfoundland, so that's his connection to the province, and there's a memorial and a monument uh, to him in Musgrave Harbor. Yeah, that's right. He was uh, doing some operational testing of the Frakes flying suit on the Lockheed bomber, <laughs> and at 33 years of age, dead, but of course still remains to this very day the youngest recipient of the Nobel Prize in Medicine, which is truly remarkable after all these years. Amazing. Good stuff. Give us a couple of highlights you want to touch on, and I've got another couple I'd like to talk about, but what do you want people to know about the inside the covers of the Almanac this year? Yeah, well, we have our usual popular features, you know, of course, all in local or alone local time zone. We have our sunrises, sunsets, phase of the moon, tides, iceberg predictions. We have lots of recipes, color photographs. Um, and as you mentioned in our in our history section, we have the you know lots of amazing when you're just walking around the the city or driving around to the province, you come across something, and when you look into it and get a bit of information about it, it's just amazing how much history is out there throughout the province. One um, one thing in particular, I would just notice downtown here. Um, and there's a, a, a granite cross over in, in a field um, just a, just below the basilica. So I kind of investigated the origins of that in Father Walsh's Hill. Um, yeah, also in in, in uh, Carbonera, there was a, um, a tragic fire 
in uh, 1904 in the postmistress she was a heroine she actually saved a, a couple of people there in the um in the in the post office during that fire so it was um, a pretty traumatic time yeah, cool stuff. And then you talk about the uh, Helen Fogwell uh, Porter footbridge. Then, of course, your artist uh, profile tribute this year goes to a very fitting recipient in Gordon Pinsent. You know, he never did lose his uh, attraction to and the work uh, in Newfoundland Labrador and really set the stage for many performers that came after him. I had the opportunity to sit down and interview him one time. Pretty extensive interview. His life and times is bigger than the Rowdy Men and some of the things he's best known for. A real fascinating character once again. Yes, he worked right up to his death, didn't he? He did so. Yes. Yep. And for other artists, we have, um, I heard a little article about Carol Keith this morning, fellow pharmacist and photographer. So she has, she has photography tips in her book this year. Also some uh, gardening tips from Jackson Clean down at Gay Seed. Um, you know, there's a whole wide range. We have um, actually a pretty interesting story, too, um, history about the uh, iceberg collisions around the problems. We have a guest author, Brian Hill, from the National Research Council, and he actually talks about there was over about 700 collisions that ships had with icebergs around the province over the over the centuries. So it's a pretty fascinating uh, information there as well. Yeah, and Gordon Pinson, just a, an interesting note, he taught dance at the Arthur Murray School of Dance in Winnipeg as a young man. Which, well. <laughs> anyway, throw that out there. Okay, over the years, let's talk about Gus Fanning, his contribution as the science editor, because a lot of the Almanac, of course, traditionally will be associated with science beyond tradition and characters and nature and what have you. How accurate has your weather forecasting been uh, over the years? Yeah, well, in the past past eight or nine years, Gus has been averaging about in the in the high sixties, almost seventy percent. You know, and it's pretty amazing for forecasting a, a year out. He takes all the weather uh, data from the past century, looks at all the weather stations around the provinces, around the province. Um, last year he had a challenging year. This year, in twenty twenty three, when he was doing his analysis, uh, and I guess Patty is partly due to the climate change, but there was a lot of uh, factors and influence of so this year, the our, our province is greatly affected by the um, what's happening in the Pacific Ocean, um, whether it's El Nino or El Nina. So it is it is kind of tricky. It was a little bit lower for his predictions this year, but he's um, going to include more weather stations and um, and try to account for some of these uh, climate changes uh, going forward. But again, very accurate. You know, when we interviewed both. Um, um, about interviewed Ashley um, a couple of years ago about the forecast, and she said it was very difficult outside of three days, you know, to do long-range forecasting. And so we're quite pleased with Gus's um, forecasting skills. Like you should be. And then you know some of the uh, companies that have seen a rebirth, like the Gay Seed Company. A couple of friends of mine are behind that operation. They were, you know, historically right there in the downtown of St. John's, kind of went by the wayside, but they've had an impressive rebirth. They have a real resurgence in um, in gardening, and if you go into the store nowadays, they have so much help they can give you. They'll even even take your things and put them right in your trunk for you. So they're they're the experts, you know, in the local gardening scene. I think it's brilliant. Then a couple of controversial issues. You focus in on Kane's Quest and Dorrance Race in Labrador, which had a tough year. And then even things like the O to Newfoundland also featured again this year, and it's being removed from the uh, convocation ceremonies at Memorial University. So an opportunity to look at some historical context, bring it forward, and see how it's impacted decisions and whatnot made in the province. Uh, final thoughts to you, Robert, about this uh, year's Almanac before we have to go. 
Yeah, well, it's, it's jam-packed with uh, a lot of information, and it's, um, you know, available um, dip some different locations around. Um, Big Goods, all Coleman locations, the Christmas House here in St. John's, most pharmacies across the province, including Neighborhood Pharmacy downtown. Uh, you mentioned Gay Seed, got the Island Treasures and Cornerbrook, Busy Hands of Carbonair, Tobin's Convenience of Lab City. We have our website um, for ordering, too, Doyle's Almanac nl.ca and um, I'll leave you with one <laughs> we have the Newfoundland uh, Wardler, which, Wardler which is always quite popular each year and um, we take some of the information um, the sayings and the explanations from back in the 20s and 30s you know, 100 years ago so there's one we have featured this year is the Bang Bellies so a Bang Belly is a pancake made of flour and uh, molasses and uh, fried up in, the, in a pan <laughs> <laughs> fat too. F- flour, molasses, and fat fried up in a frying pan. Oh, I'm familiar with the bang belly. <laughs> okay. Make no mistake. And the very last recipe in the almanac, of course, there is a section about purity factories, the apple and partridge berry jam muffins. The recipe's from purity. That's on my list. I'm a bit of a, uh, <laughs> a, bit of a hack as a baker. I don't mind cooking. I'm terrible at baking. But with my wife's aid, I'm trying to broaden my baking horizons. So I'm giving the apple and partridge berry jam muffins a swing. Yes, 100 years for Purity Factories. Give them a, give them a ring out. <laughs> Absolutely. Robert, good to have you on the show. Congratulations to you and Gus on this year's edition. Well, thanks again, Gus, and I really appreciate taking the time to talk to us. Thank you. Happy to do it. Bye, Robert. Okay. Bye. Good luck with it. Thanks. Here we go. Uh, good stuff. Let's go to line number three and say good morning to Ryan Clary with CNL. Good morning, Ryan. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. Do you and your listeners? Thank you for taking the call. Happy to do it. So, moving for a not-for-profit professional organization to examining the possibility for a for-profit uh, cooperative. You know, notably, look around Petty Harbor, Fogo Island, and the huge successes up on Labrador with the Labrador Union Shrimp Company. What's the starting point for here? How did the, how and why did you make the decision to examine this potential next steps? Well, Patty, um, the board of directors of CNL met last week. We made the decision to make the transition. The Broad Strokes plan is the transition from a nonprofit professional advocacy association, which is what we've been doing for two years, fighting for the inshore fleet, and make the transition to a for-profit, as you said, corporation to better represent licensed enterprise owners in Newfoundland specifically, but strengthen the entire inshore the entire inshore fishery. Now, for the information of your listeners who aren't so familiar with co-ops, so co-ops are owned by, by the members, one member, one vote. Co-ops give back to the people and the communities around them. And as you just said, Patty, successful co-ops operate in Labrador. Um, there's a community co-op in Petty Harbor. There's a regional co-op, or I see it as a regional co-op on Fogo Island. They're owned and operated by local members who share the profits or the benefits with the communities around them. Now, and again, as you said, in the case of the Labrador Fisherman's Union Shrimp Company, that co-op, I believe it was started in 1978, but it represents 130 inshore enterprise owners from Lancaster and the Straits to, to Cartwright further north. It owns and operates, Petty, five processing plants. Two midshore banker boats, I believe they fish turbot, and they operate an offshore factory freezer trawler. Now, the, the Labrador Co-op actually owns that offshore trawler with a fisherman's co-op, Patty, out of New Brunswick, if you, if you can believe that. Now, I'm not saying that our co-op, a co-op for Newfoundland, would, would mimic the Labrador Shrimp Company. I just bring that up uh, to give people an idea of what we, what we could shoot for and of what the vision is. Because the bottom line is, while Labrador's commercial fishery has been thriving and growing, Newfoundland's inshore fleet is at the beck and call of, of, for, of, of for-profit foreign and domestic processing companies, Royal Greenland, for example. 
And those companies, the way we see it, they squeeze every last penny from a fleet that shrinks further every year. You're told when to fish, how much to fish. You're punished if you speak out. You can't change buyers. You mentioned the, the federal competition a little earlier, Pat. Uh, Patty, well, fish pricing in this province, and I've said this before, is actually excluded from the Federal Competition Act. Um, so processing companies basically operate as a cartel with practical impunity, practically with government's blessing. So what, we're, what we've done, now we're going to proceed with baby steps, but they'll be quick. We'll make sure we do our homework first. But the plan is to put together a steering committee to lead the transition, to put the, pow- the power back into the hands of the inshore fleet. Sorry, Patty, I'm not sure if the power ever was in the hands of the inshore fleet. So uh, we're putting together a steering committee. If if you're an inshore owner operator, you're listening to this show, uh, and you'd like to serve on on the steering committee, please contact me. The email address is c-nl at outlook.com, or or just go to the CNL website. So, But that's what the plan is. The plan is to transition into a co-op. We believe that the inshore fleet would be better off uh, if they take the power into their own hands, put the power into the inshore fleet, and push it forward. What do you make of the complication associated with trying to transform CNL into this type of co-op? Because, for instance, Petty Harbor, Fogo Island, Labrador, all operating in very close proximity to each other's enterprise versus the uh, the organizations or the inshore harvester enterprises you would represent. Because not only different species, but different times of year to fish, different rules and different tax and different uh, fishing zones. So does that really complicate it? more than or am i just making reading too much into it oh no patty uh it does complicate it you know this challenge will be immense um i uh i've taken on a few challenges in my life and this is up there i know uh what a monster challenge this is but we've been working with the newfoundland and labrador federation of co-ops um we know that this can be done. If you Again, if you look at Labrador, not, not that we're going to model ourselves at Labrador, but if, if you look at the geographical size of that space, 130 fishermen, and what they've grown that, that that's taken a lot of time to grow that to five processing plants, 500 workers, uh, middle-distance boats, offshore trawlers. It's going to take time. Um, that's why we're going to proceed, like I say, in baby steps, but there'll be quick steps. We, we've learned from experience, Patty, that change in the intra fishery can only be done with fishermen, not for fishermen. So we expect the first order of business will be to pull enterprise owners to gauge support. Only then will we move forward. So we're putting together, as I said, a steering committee uh, enterprise of enterprise owners um, to, to map out the way forward. Again, we're working with the Newfoundland Labrador Federation of Co-ops. We expect to, st- to start that transition uh, immediately. I, I've been working on it for a couple of weeks, actually, but we're going to plan some meetings for Central Newfoundland by the end of the month with that steering committee, and we're going to map the way forward. So baby steps, but we'll be moving quick. And in the, inside the processing sector, if memory serves, the Labrador co-op, they bought existing plants and reinvigorated historical processing licenses to be inside of their five processing plant uh, envelope. So is that even part of the strategy for your group is to have some sort of processing capacity inside or is it simply simply for the harvesters one more time well patty no that's a vision to shoot for i mean labrador set the bar and uh, it seems to me it works for labrador it could work for um for newfoundland so that's 
I mean, that's what we're going to shoot for. You know, but again, baby steps, one step at a time. Like we know, for example, right now that the fish processing licensing board in this province, you and I have spoke about this before, Patty. Um, they're looking at uh, possibly new processing licenses. Bay Roberts, for example, they applied last year, didn't get it. They're probably applying again. And we know that other companies are applying for to lift the caps, the processing caps. St. Mary's, for example, had, uh, I believe, a 2 million or 2.5 million cap uh, last year. If new processing licenses, I, uh, I was approached a while ago by a um, processing company looking to do business uh, with inshore enterprise owners. Uh, and we looked at the relationship in terms of, um, okay, well, this processing company does a deal with CNL um, because they'll be looking for product for, for enterprise owners. Maybe they'll give us, they'll, not maybe, they'll give a sweeter deal to our enterprise owners who agree to sell them their product. So when that happened, we saw some um, opportunities for enterprise owners, and 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 then we also we, then we took a look at the CNL structure as a uh, a non for profit association, advocacy association, and then we realized that again, Mer- Merv Wiseman and I have been pushing this uh, specifically, but we realized that uh, we'd be better positioned to deal with these processing companies to begin with as a co op, as a for profit co op owned by the members, for the members, for the benefit of the members and the communities around them. So that's where we're coming from. Um, now, that processing board is going to make some decisions, we think, any time. I expected them last month, but uh, there are opportunities that are com- coming up. The inshore fleet right now, and I'm not telling you or your listeners anything you don't know, Patty, but this was a horrible year. Um, not just the fact that the, the crab fishery was down half a billion dollars, but what's really been exposed from this year, again, is how under the, the thumb of processors this inshore fleet is. When to fish, how much to fish, uh, how, how far to jump, how high, the whole nine yards. We, say, we see the co-op as a way around that and, and again, put the, the power in the hands of the inshore fleet and the communities that they service. Appreciate the time this morning, Ryan. We'll uh, follow along as the process unfolds. I appreciate the time, Patty. Have a great day. You too, Ryan. Bye-bye. Uh, you know, it's a wonder to me there's not more co-ops in place in various industries in the province. But anyway, let's take a break. When we come back, heat pumps and then yesterday's announcement regarding centers of excellence regarding aging. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Chris, you're on the air. Oh, good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Uh, I just wanted to uh, readdress a, a topic or a conversation you had a few minutes ago with a man about uh, getting uh, heat pumps or split mini splits or whatever they're called, and that, and he got a wood stove and that, and uh, so he was told by the insurance company that he can't uh, have it that way. He's got to have a secondary source of heat. He has to have a different primary source of heat. Yeah, uh, a primary source. So, uh-huh. what would the primary source of heat be? Like a, a oil furnace or a hot water, hot air furnace or something like that? That's right. Right. Okay. Nobody's picking up on this. What happens if you uh, if you're using your heat pump and you 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 lose the electricity? Same thing that happens when you lose electricity, no matter how you're heating your home, pretty much. Exactly. Yeah. So, how are you supposed to heat your home with a hot air furnace or an oil fired furnace with hot water if you lose your electricity? Well, the short answer is you can't. I mean, you can have space heaters, you can have wood stoves, but those traditional types of heat sources are, you know, nothing's going to be perfect. If the power goes out, I mean, you can't even get a bit of gas for your vehicle, let alone heat your home, So unless you have a wood stove. So, yeah, that's absolutely part of it, Chris. Yes, so, like, the wood stove is the perfect answer. 
It is. But I, I have a wood furnace. Like I, I, I replaced all my system there a little while ago. Okay. I have an electric uh, hot water furnace now, and uh, I got a New Yorker 200 wood furnace that I've had there for years, and it's heated my house for years and years. Now, I haven't used it in a year and some odd, but I keep it there as a backup. So, in case, because I don't need to have electricity to run that. No, of course not. So where is it in the home? Do you have like a one level, like I would imagine many people's cabins, for instance, where a wood stove can be the absolute go-to because there is no basement, there is ne- not necessarily an upstairs unless you're in a big A-frame. So wood heat can absolutely satisfy those types of settings. If I have a wood stove, a little pot belly or something in the basement, unless I've got maybe ducting and or just the ability to funnel heat through grates in the floor to help heat the upstairs, then it can only heat that space. So how does it work in your home? Well, like in my case, it's hooked into my a New Yorker wood, a New Yorker two hundred uh, wood furnace. It is, it's, it works the same as an oil fired furnace. It's just that you're heating your hot water with wood instead of oil. Okay. That's all. So what happens is when the uh, there's a valve on top of the wood furnace that is electricity wise, it keeps it shut, and it's it's for just in case your water gets too hot in your wood furnace, it dumps out into the system. So what happens then? But when your electricity goes, that valve no longer can stay shut, so the valve opens up and the hot water that's in the wood furnace rises just through natural, through the natural process of hot rises and cold drops. Yeah. It, it rises and runs all through my radiation system in my house. And so at no point do you need any interaction with electricity for the wood stove to heat the entire home? No. Okay. No. I've done it. I, I've been in that situation. But it, but it's ludicrous what the insurance companies are saying because they're saying they got to have alternate heat sources. The only alternate heat sources other than that furnace there is a wood stove or the sun. You know, like there's, there's no water. You can't run any other source, like an oil fire furnace or a hot air furnace. You can't run them without electricity. No, you're right. So Forced you air, no anything. Still. It's a fair point, Chris, and you're right. When the power goes out, unless you have a, a you know a space heater and you have to be careful with those, and or you have a generator or you have a wood what stove, then you're just waiting. What? Space heaters need electricity. Well, it depends how they're driven. Like I have one that runs on propane, or pardon me, on uh, kerosene. So, but that of course not necessarily safe to be using in the house. So I just we used to use it outside. But anyway, fair enough. Well, I know a friend of mine, He had, when you said that, I, a friend of mine uh, had a house, and what he, he had these space heaters, but what they were was there was oil in them, and he'd plug them in, and they they would heat the house. Yep. Yeah, wow. but, but again, they need electricity. You know, that's the thing. Like, the only way that you're going to be able to keep your house safe from freezing up and your pipes busting and all this stuff is to have hot, is to have a wood furnace. That's it. There's nothing else. Unless you have your own, you know, you got your own solar system up on top of your roof there, and you're you're doing it that way. But that's thousands of dollars too, because I set up one in my cabin, and they're not cheap. By no means are they cheap. You know, it's it's, it's like it's, it, the insurance company is not is they can't see the was it can't see their nose for their face or something like that. Whatever they're saying goes. for the trees for the trees. Yeah, yeah for for the trees. Thank you very much. No problem. That's what it was. Uh, they can't see the forest for the trees. They're still leaving their clients with no heat to protect their, their hot water radiation system from Boston. Like when I was a kid, I used to go to Gambo in the winter times, and all we ever had was a wood stove that you cooked on. Yeah, but they're not saying you can't have a wood stove. Oh, no, no, no. They're just, just saying, saying they, they will not. Okay, I'll let you wrap it up, Chris, before we go. Go ahead. 
know, but that used to heat our whole house. And in the time upstairs would be all warm. You got up in the morning, though, the canvas on the floor downstairs was pretty cold. But, you know, once my grandfather got it going again, the way we went, we had heat in the house. But they need to have some sort of, uh, they got to have something else other than electric fur- oil furnace, or I uh, should say an oil furnace or a hot air oil furnace, you know, the hot water oil furnace or hot air oil furnace, because there's not that many options. And wood is the only really safe as option if you've got a proper stove, properly installed and all that. And does the job quite well. So they, I don't know what the insurance companies thinking about. They're not they're not thinking with their brains anyway, because they you know, you gotta have electricity to run these other sources of heat, like an electric furnace like I got now. Electric furnace goes or heat electricity goes. Mm-hmm. All I got is my wood furnace. I appreciate That's the it. time, Chris. Thanks for the call this morning. All right, you take care. You bye too, bye. man. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, we're going to talk about the Centers of Excellence for Aging, that announcement yesterday, which was always coming, given the fact that in the health court's work, acknowledging or identifying the fact that we never really had firm policies for the frail elderly and or elder care. I mean, there's only four geriatricians in the province, so some moves made there. We'll see what Barry Petten, the uh, PC member for CBS, thinks about that. And then Kathy's in the queue to talk about flyers, where they're printed. What's that all about? Wait and see. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Say good morning to the PC member for CBS. That's Barry Petten. Good morning, Barry. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. How are you? Best kind. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Patty, I'm calling in, of course, as you already stated, about the announcement yesterday of Minister Osborne and uh, Dr. Parfrey and uh, Ms. Mercer, I believe, yeah, Susan Mercer. That's right. Uh, yeah, so on the Centres of Excellence in Aging. And, you know, Patty, off the surface, I mean, you know, I mean, we're all college critics. I, I mean, I don't see nothing wrong with what was announced uh, from top to bottom. I mean, I took in the announcement, actually. I, you know, I watched live stream. I watched the announcement, and I, my first instincts were, it was all good. And, you know, there's nothing to complain about here. I mean, it's, they're all, it's all good things. But I guess what the crux of my highest frustration, and something I hear on a daily basis when I go out around my district and out around everywhere when you talk to people, these announcements, you know, we're getting announcement after announcement after announcement. But does it change the lives of any seniors? Yesterday's announcement, did that change any seniors' life today? I don't think so. I mean, you look at the Central, we're left out. They haven't got nothing arranged for Central, which is which I don't think is fair. I mean, you know, if you're making this announcement, if you're going out to the media center, you're having this announcement, you get all the facts. you got Dr. Parfrey at your side. There's a health court initiative. And we, we support all the health court stuff. And we're not saying this, what was announced yesterday is bad. But what about, like, what about doing a thorough announcement? What about announcing for the right reason, as opposed to some of the stuff to me, it's cross. I've been around a long time in the political world, and I know the good and bad of it. It's like a deflection. It's and, and I say this often. I mean, people can. I mean, I people are willing to come uh, criticize me too. But I say this often. It's it's like all this deflection stuff. So, you know, we have issues. This is seniors. Our population being 20% seniors. It's not a new thing. It's not new news to yesterday. Uh, you know, the initials announced are good, but, but why don't we just do a thorough announcement? Why don't we get this right? What about, like, what about Central? Open Labrador is kind of put to the back burner. So St. Clair's are not built yet, and we're making announcements what's going to in St. Clair's. Like, this, was this announcement necessary on a Monday in November? Uh, what are we doing? Is, I mean, are we not trying to lull people into a false sense of security and tell seniors we got your back and, you know, we're there to protect you and we're going to look after your needs? Because all these things are needed. They're overdue. I mean, our health care system, I've said this state of this before, Maybe on your program, but I've never, I've never held it in. It's you know, we, our healthcare lacks empathy, Patty. And you know, when you see a senior lying across chairs in a, in a waiting room, was was we it's, we all seen that just 
social media. We heard many more stories. I mean, I'll, you know, on a personal level, I just, I mean, I sat in an emergency uh, with my own mother, almost 80 year old, in a wheelchair. She was in the wheelchair. I stood up because there was nowhere to sit for almost 12 hours. But that's attended to in this announcement, right? So this was always coming. Whether it's necessary or the timing of it, I don't know one way or the other if it's the right time or the wrong time. But even when the subcommittee is working on the health accord, we're talking about there was no specific policy and training programs in place for the frail elderly. So this was always going to come. And you mentioned emergency rooms. That's one of the keys in here is senior friendly services at emergency care centers, making it easier to navigate and more comfortable for seniors. So isn't that the good news? Yeah, and that's what I said in the beginning. I'm not criticizing what was announced. It's long overdue and needed. But I'm, what I'm more critical of is what, like, what's been done today. So these problems are not going to change today. They're not going to change tomorrow. They're not going to change six months. Now, Patty, this announcement is really a two- to five-year announcement. But do we still lack the family doctors in the province? Are seniors still struggling in every avenue? Are people still waiting for CT scans and, and CAT scans and MRIs to get surgeries done? I deal with that on a daily basis. This is what I'm getting at. I mean, these announcements, there's one after another, Patty. I mean, again, we sit down. I mean, the political world is one release after another coming up. But what are we really resolving? And that's, that's, I guess, that's my, you know, that's my brick to this announcement. There's good things there, yes. And those things, like I said, are people in the waiting rooms and worse and worse. As we're talking now, you hear those announcements. People are going out and they get this lull sense of security. Oh, we're moving forward. But next week, they're not going to see no improvement. Next month, they're not going to see no improvement. I don't say next year you're going to see improvement, Patty. This is down the road stuff. So what in the, what's the end game here? Is the end game here, no doubt will probably help down the road, but what's the, why, we this, why did we announce that yesterday? This could have been announced next year. We'd be no further ahead because there's a lot of things still outstanding. The emergency room is well under construction. That's three years out over to, over to uh, Health Sciences, the connection with the new mental health facility. That's not going to happen anytime soon. We've got a temporary one there now that's, in, you know, that's, that's not in the greatest shape. This is all down the road in the St. Clair's. We don't even know where that's going yet. You know, so all these things, that, and that's, that's, that's the crux of my fault. When I heard it yesterday, that's all that jumped out at me. You know, I mean, I'm not going to say what was announced yesterday. To your point, you're right, absolutely. They're going to help things, but they're not going to help it where we need it now. And people are struggling today, and they're going to be struggling next year, and they're going to be struggling the year after. And these announcements are only doing, they're only, again, it's like a psychological game because it's not helping anything. It's other people are thinking things are improving, but actual fact, they're not. And I've seen this with Fury's administration from day one. I've said this, this is not the first issue I've spoken this, Patty. This is something that is a trend. You know, as a matter of fact, a short example, I went to an event last couple of weeks in my own district, and the Premier was a guest speaker, and it was a business award. And I actually, when he got up and spoke for 15 minutes, if I would have closed my eyes, I would have thought I was in utopia. When I opened my eyes, I realized I was in a beautiful facility of manuals, but I wasn't, I wasn't anywhere near what I was listening to coming out, coming out of that man's mouth. And this is what the trend I hear. And, I mean, some people can call it up for what it's worth, and I don't mind calling it up because it's, what, you know, it's our job, and it's, it's, I think it's a responsibility we all need to do, and it's fair play. Because that's what you're hearing. And I mean, it's, it's constant basis every day, whether it's health care, it's carbon tax. We have a housing announcement to come out today. I read on, on actually on BOCM there. They're looking for vacant land. So this land was vacant last year and the year before and the year before that. Yeah, but so why push it down the road? I'm having a little bit of a hard time following along here. You said they could announce it la- next year. But if you announce it next year, you're a year worse off, aren't you? But, you Patty, know? your planning is already in, sta- in process. The announcement is only formality. You do the work. But that's how it works. Yes and no, Patty. I mean, I think, again, these announcements are, you look at this, this flurry of announcements and what's been announced, a lot of the stuff, you do your planning, there's no reason you can't do that down the road, no reason the planning can't continue on, and then announce when you're ready to unveil it. Usually you should be ready to unroll it within the next six months for unrolling this. This is down the road, it's beyond down the road, I mean, it'll probably be a new government place, 
about all different faces. Now, like, I don't get it. This planning still goes on. We're not saying they're not planning. Move forward. And that's, that's, that's the crux of my frustration. I think it's pretty simple. I mean, you're announcing stuff now, probably five years down the road. Do the work on it. Give people, when you come out and announce it, then people get something to look forward to. It's around the corner. This stuff is, this stuff is down, I mean, so far down the road, Paddy. It's not going to, it's not changing any senior's life in this province today, and it's not going to be for years down the road. And that's the frustration I found with a lot of these announcements. And, and this government does a great job of it. Is there any such thing as a healthcare-related announcement that has today impact? People's lives are changed today? Because if we're talking about $5 million to train uh, folks to be geriatricians, of which we only have four in the province, and infrastructure like building a new hospital, and infrastructure like new emergency rooms, all of this takes time. So do you have an example in mind of something they can announce in healthcare that improves the system today? Well, I've always said uh, shortage of family, family doctors is one of, I think it's the crux of probably the number one issue in our healthcare system, that, and it catapults from there. You know, and well, so, you know, I've talked to doctors, what about expand, you know, expanded service, scope of practice? You know, you can get a blended funding model. Some, i got some doctors that can't do GP work because they are specialties, that are willing to do GP work, but then you get in, caught into the billing process and government want to prove it. So why don't they expand their scope of practice, come up with a proper billing process that everything is above board and you don't have to be out of people every every month or every other day and these people are telling me that take thousands of people off the system which that would that, that would have an immediate impact this has been proposed it's worked up to worked its way up the chain but the government will not move with it i mean i don't think it's insurmountable i mean you got you get these specialists are telling me this they're willing they're they're crying out they want i mean one guy left the province went to the states because he got so frustrated with working here he wants to come home but He's offering this is one of his one of the things he wants to do when he comes back and one, he'd like to work on a combined service. Why can't we do that? So, well, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. That that could happen quickly. Yeah, but at the same time, there's doctors who do want to see LPNs and nurse practitioners and pharmacists to expand their scope because of their own territory that they don't want carved out as well. So there's a little bit of. Uh, well, you're going to, you're, again, it comes down to the, the age old point, Patty. You're not pleasing everybody. I mean, you're going to try to find something to please the people out there, Newfoundlanders, Labradorians, the 150,000 that don't have a family doctor. I think that's the stuff that's here. Now, if you can find something to solve that now instead of going down and competing with Saskatchewan and trying to you know, poach theirs because they're poaching ours. I mean, that's silliness. I mean, we need to be more on the ball and deal with our own doctors because we, we could do a lot of things in-house here and, and that stuff that wouldn't take over a lot, long time. And I think you got to, uh, people are willing to do it, but government got to be also willing to. Appreciate the time, Barry. Thanks for the call. Okay, Patty. Take, Take care. care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Barry Pettin is the PC member for CBS. You want to pick up on that? You can do it after this. But here's a traffic advisory. Clarenville RCMP advised motorists of a lane reduction on the Trans-Canada Highway approximately two kilometers west of Clarenville due to a very serious collision. Traffic is moving slowly. Motors, motors are asked to use caution and avoid cell phone use. That, to me, says there's something pretty serious involving that, that collision. So two kilometers west of Clarenville, lane reduction. Traffic is moving slowly. Avoid if at all possible. Let's take a break. Kathy, you're next and talk about flyers being printed. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Kathy, you're on the air. Line number two, Kathy. Hello. Hi, hi. Go right ahead. You're on the air. Oh, hi. Good morning. Uh, I was just wondering if uh, people are aware that the uh, flyers that are put in your mailbox every week uh, especially like the Pipers, Coleman and Bid Goods are uh, they're all printed up in the Halifax now and not post and uh, not printed locally and I think that's kind of um, kind of like a I don't know what to think of that scene that we're all trying to promote local businesses and here these flyers now are printed up on the mainland and uh, shipped in to be uh, distributed. 
Well, I would imagine it's not the businesses necessarily choosing to print elsewhere. It's Saltwire itself. So their headquarters are in Halifax, and consequently, inside of their revenue stream and how do they drive it, they'll make that decision on behalf of the companies. They'll say, here's how we do the business. Here's what it costs to put your flyers in the bag. And plus, here's the printer of choice. Oh, yeah, I know. I was just wondering if the businesses like Pipers, which are local, are aware of this. Oh, I'm That's sure they are. Question. That's part of the contract. They'll know what they're getting oh, themselves into. Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, oh, I'm involved yeah. with an organization. We do that, and we have a preferred printer. Now, we don't yeah. tell you that you have you absolutely must use ours, but that's part of the pricing that we use. It's beneficial to them financially if they use the printer that we're, we're in business with. So I think that's pretty standard stuff. Not to say oh, it's, it's great. Uh, It'd be great if the printer uh, was uh, on Le Marchant Road, but the fact of the matter is Saltwire is up in Halifax, and so I guess that's their revenue-side decision. Yeah. Oh, gee, that's too bad with the loss of uh, jobs and everything, which is too bad. Yeah, and of course, some of the big printing operations have gone out of business, like Sterling's Press and the, yeah. even the Telegram with their... Their horsepower and their printing presence, I think, has been dra- dramatically reduced as well. So, fair yeah, enough. So fair point. Yeah, it, yeah. It's I suspect too now with uh, Stingray taking over everything too. Uh, it the uh, local media will be all changed too. Well, I don't know. We still do our business the same way we've always done since Stingray. Like, I mean, for instance, as someone who works here, nothing's changed yeah. for me. Like, the, no. all the same managers are in place. I've never met anyone from Stingray. Well, that's not true. I met one guy one time from Stingray. So our newsroom are all the locals. We do it from here. The morning show is done here in this building. This show is done here in this building. Greg does his stuff. Claudette does her stuff. So nothing's changed yeah. for us. No, it hasn't changed. You nope. don't foresee anything changing in uh, in your business there. Well, I don't know, but since they bought it, nothing's changed. Like none no. of the programming has changed. None of the people have changed. The managers haven't changed. So for me, uh, my email address is the same. For instance, like I don't, I've never spoken to anyone uh, from Stingray about any business at all. We just do what we do. Nothing's changed for me. I come in and do the show just like I've always done it. Oh, that's good to hear because you're always thinking people come in and kind of take up a lot of stuff that things change. They usually make, bring it all to the mainland like Halifax or Toronto and then they kind of oversee it from there. We've bought some content on some of the other stations that is part of their day-to-day programming, but I can only really speak for VOCM because that's really my focus uh, inside yeah, this building. Right. We yeah. do things the way we always did and nothing has changed for me, period. Like nothing. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Oh, excellent because you always think, you know, people trying to buy up everything and take monopoly of everything, right? Because I think uh, Coast is the only independent one now, isn't it? Sure. Uh, and even when we were part of the larger picture with the steel-owned operations, Newcap was a nationwide company. So yeah. I think they had like 86 licenses. So we came from uh, an already big player to just be bought right. up by a company. That's not even really in the radio business. They're in the no, streaming service business. So they didn't yeah. let go any radio staff. The radio brass the radio brass are the same as they've always been for us. And uh, Dave just whispered to me, yeah, Sterling at NTV, they're still independent. The only one of their, the like in the TV business in the country. Perfect. That's excellent. And again, local. <laughs> that was excellent. And my other, and my other uh, comment I wanted to make, uh, I think, uh, I don't know if you heard my thing. Uh, we go up to, as a East Ender, it, well, I call East End, uh, you know, down around Newfoundland Hotel. That's where I grew up. Uh, we go to Signal Hill just about every day. And when I drive by the Interpretation Centre, I see local businesses, not all the time, but sometimes local businesses, uh, with the electric cars uh, charging their vehicles at the um, charging stations at the uh, interpretation centre. And um, I find that a little bit hard to take. (laughs) 
how, how do we know they don't have permission to do that? Or they're not actually doing something with the Interpretation Centre? Well, they're there every other day. Well, and they might. They might be, but it's just kind of strange that they're always there getting their vehicle charged. And you're right. And <clears throat> yes, you are. They, they could be in there, but on a Sunday evening or whatever. Well, and uh, it's just that it's a free service there, and uh, I don't know why I don't get my free tank of gas when I uh, get on National Historic Site. Well, the Parks Canada is the federal government, so I would imagine they know who's using it for starters. Even if it's outside business hours, they've got the cameras to identify who's doing what on their property. I'd be surprised if they don't know what's going on, and if they have a problem with it, make no mistake, the hammer of the federal government would come down pretty quick. Uh, I disagree with you there because, uh, like I said, I grew up in the East End and uh, for years... Oh, did you? Yeah. Okay, well, did you... Uh, well, forever we grew up knowing that you were never allowed to swim in George's Pond. Never allowed, never allowed. Now, they sure they switched it over. They did. And I complained relentlessly about people letting their dogs in that pond. And uh, and I called, and I called this guy, Bill Brake, out in uh, Gander or wherever he is, and they did absolutely nothing about it. And I said, well, listen, it's like this. You either let people swim in it or take the sign down. And anyway, they took the sign down, but they did nothing about it. So the strong arm of the uh, Park Canada did absolutely nothing when I complained about that. Is there a problem with dogs being able to swim in the pond? Well, when it says no boats, no swimming, no dogs, yes, there is a problem with it. But they took the sign down, right? They changed the rule, didn't they? This year. Yeah. This year. This year. But I'm talking about before this year when people were swimming in it and people letting their dogs in it and everything else when when it was supposed to be a reserve. Okay. Right? When there were signs up saying, and I spoke to a lady, I said, that says no swimming. She goes, yes, but we don't listen to that. <laughs> well, I'm not sure. Anyway, if it's an issue for you, so be it. Uh, I don't really have a concern with... You know, someone want to take a dip in a pond, but anywho. Oh, well, no, you're allowed to do it now, so yep. great. You I've are. been in it. <laughs> okay. Anyway, good night, or good day, sorry. You too, Kathy. Take care. Take care. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Let's go. Line number three. Mike, you're on the air. Thank you, Patty. Uh, I wanted to uh, ask you a question. I won't keep you long. No problem. Uh, that lady was talking about the uh, flyers being delivered. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't care where they're made. I don't care where they come from. I just like to get them delivered. Do you have an idea where I can call or contact someone? Yeah, for people who want to be included on the list and or removed from the list, because there's lots of people who don't want to be on the flyers list either, but I don't mind flipping through them. Yeah, you can just call Saltwire. It's a toll-free number. I can get it for you. Sure, thank you. No problem. Okay, so delivery and flyers, one 888 333 Right 88 Yep 40 And what's your name again? That's Saltwire That's the company that owns the uh, newspapers including the Telegram S-A-L-T Wire You got it Thank you Patty very much Have a good day You too Mike 
Bye-bye. All the best. Bye-bye. And for those who would like to be removed, because some people don't want the flyers, right? There's another toll-free uh, number for exactly that. Contact your flyer distributor to be removed from the distribution list. And Saltwire, that toll-free number is 1-800-565-3339. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the Liberal member for Lake Melville. That's Perry Trimper. And good morning, Perry. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So apparently you're one of the people that has instigated this new $6 million worth of investigation about injecting carbon into the depleted oil fields off our shore. Is the thought process or the beginning of it for you, Perry, that it would simply be capture in our offshore to pump into these wells? Or are you also including what the Premier describes as a commercial opportunity to import carbon from elsewhere? I guess it's E, Petty, all of the above, and then some other aspects. I, I mean, you and I have spoken on several different topics, all relating to what can we do to reduce, uh, you know, our carbon footprint and what's happening in the world right now. So uh, while I'm not a big fan of proceeding, and you and I have spoken about it with, you know, new oil and gas fields and, and projects and the need to get ourselves off burning hydrocarbons, uh, I have been looking at other opportunities and see what we can do to contribute to this massive problem that is affecting the entire world is how do we get our levels of carbon dioxide down? Um, you know, projections are right now that uh, in some 27 years from now, uh, the average winter temperature here in Goose Bay will be six degrees warmer than it was before, you know, just a couple hundred years ago. We've added some 50% of the concentration of CO2 to the atmosphere, and it's like adding more blankets to our Earth, so it's getting warmer and warmer and warmer. So two things. One is we need to pull back on our emissions, what we're putting into the sky. And secondly, and this is what the Premier was excited about when I took this idea to him, I said, we need to make a contribution to actually pulling the CO2 that's up there now, that the additional blankets, we need to pull some of that out. And the way that some jurisdictions are doing that is they can capture it right from the atmosphere directly and, and inject it into the ground, or you can you can at your sources. So, so for example, at Holyrood, potentially, we could capture the CO2 that's burned there, uh, you know, compress it, and then place it in a location such as our offshore in a secure and stable manner, and, and thereby pulling that uh, those concentrations in the, of CO2 out of the sky. For me, that's a proximity concern, right? Because if we're talking about importing other people's pollution, which is exactly what we're talking about here, mm -hmm. then you add in the emissions associated with marine transport, and we may just have an offset. So, you know, we haven't reduced any real emissions because, you know, whatever we captured, 14%, we're either at the source and or at Holyrood or at some sort of refinery in the North Sea or in the Northeastern United States mm -hmm. to get it here to inject it. We may just indeed just have some sort of offset or close to, and maybe even worse off. Well, certainly, and it, I don't, we have to look at this. First of all, um, you know, the oceans of our Earth are actually some 25% of the, the CO2 that's out there is stored in the oceans. 
what's happening is as the atmosphere has more and more CO2, the oceans are warming. They're becoming more acidic. And we're seeing, you know, you just had Ryan Cleary on and some of the challenges with our fishery. We see different things happening around us. You know, fish stocks are doing different things. The waters are warming and so on. So we, we need to find a way to do this so that it, it, it doesn't make it worse. Um, traditionally, in Canada, we have been looking at carbon storage for a few decades in places like Alberta, Saskatchewan. They were they were storing it on land in, in their, their locations of their oil and gas structure, um, but very expensive and doesn't take advantage of some of the natural elements. And this is what got my head thinking about a year ago was that oh, – I'm sorry about that uh, – was that the um, – Carbon dioxide is actually being stored um, in the bottom of our oceans naturally, and it's stored under pressure, and in cold temperatures, it actually becomes quite stable. And, you know, so there's a natural situation, and what's happening is technology and people that are trying to make progress on this are looking around the world and say, what can I do to take advantage of these natural systems? So with our own existing oil and gas fields, there is an opportunity to now just reverse the kind of technology and research that's been going on at Memorial, for example, which has been, you know, how can we get oil out of the ground through to now with this competition? What can we do to inject carbon dioxide back into that same area? So, you know, they that's do it different lot. things in different places. Like we had Dr. Leslie James, yeah. process engineering professor Perfect. on this program, and talking about the different ways that it's been done, you know, to inject it into uh, saline aquifers or abandoned salt mines mm-hmm. or depleted oil reservoirs mm-hmm. and have you. And also, also talk about the percentage captured. The most recent report that I read in the New York Times, you know, 15 of the flagship carbon storage projects in the world, people talked about capturing 80 to 90 percent. Overall, capturing more, closer to 20 percent. She says you can indeed get all, all the way up to 100, but then it all depends on cost. So at some point, in using innovation and technology and maybe pressure points like taxes or what have you, there's going to be a, a calculation done as to whether or not spending that much money versus trying to reduce the emissions at the beginning is going to be wise money spent. What do you think? Well, you're right. Um, you know, and right now, I think carbon, uh, the carbon pricing in Canada, uh, you know, a ton of carbon dioxide is, I think, is priced right now at sixty-five dollars a ton. That's right. You know, the ambition right now was to move that up as high as one hundred and seventy dollars a ton. Now, we're going, and we try not to go into other role, uh, rabbit holes around carbon taxation, but we can. But the fact of the matter is that you know, the world is looking at a ton of pollution as a commodity. And if you can find ways to reduce that, um, uh, you know, sequester it, store it, take it out of the equation, it's going to be worth money. So, you know, first of all, we have an obligation as society and thinking about future generations to come, come that are coming after us uh, to do what we can to make this planet as livable as possible. It is going to take investment, but you know, the added the the strategy of increasing the price per ton is to drive people to other options and. And that's why you're seeing the price of carbon uh, going up. That's why you're seeing, I think, most of the, the world's jurisdictions actually do have a price on pollution. I think some 40 nations actually use carbon taxation. Um, in our country, we are struggling with it because of the communication. It's complicated. It's confusing. We need to find ways to, to make it nice and straightforward. But the fact of the matter is there will be economic price points where it will be quite lucrative. Uh, I think, you know, we do need to step back and realize that to protect our future generations, this is going to take an investment. If we can do it in situ with our own oil and gas fields that are operating now or, you know, we develop more in the future, 
with the deep ocean opportunities, that cold temperature, that high pressure, we can actually find a great stable way to to pull that carbon back out of out of the sky where it's causing a lot of harm right now. There's no question it could be done and be quite lucrative. The issue would be whether or not that does anything regarding an overall reduction in emissions. Like in the province of BC, they're entertaining very similar research, but their concept there is because they don't drill offshore, don't have depleted oil wells. They're talking about injecting carbon directly into the basalt rock formations. And after some mm-hmm. 25 years, the carbon actually turns into rock. So so a different approach, given the realities there without holes punched in the floor of the ocean to drill for whether it be mining and or oil. So different stock to be taken. With the concept of lucrative versus emission control, people are quick to say that this technology, this approach is very much greenwashing of the fossil fuel industry. They say, well, we can capture all this carbon and we can store it, whether it be in a shallow well they drill alongside where they're working, whether it be in an aqualine, uh, a saline aquifer or a salt mine or an oil well, but it gives them license to continue to do what they're doing. Your thoughts, because the greenwashing is the number one pushback on this technology. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate, and I think you know you look around in in our own industry. Certainly, it's heavily subsidized still. So it's there's an accusation, and I've had it leveled up myself since we came uh, with this proposal a little while ago. But the fact of the matter is, this is this is pure research going in a whole new direction. It has nothing to do with the profit margins of the oil and gas industry, but it has a whole lot to do with what we're doing right now, which is in two thirds of our. CO2 that we're putting in the sky is through the the burning of fossil fuels. And we need to find a way to do it. If we can partner with the industry uh, and use the fact that they've got that infrastructure in the offshore uh, uh, to help us, you know, with the injection of the CO2 back into a very stable situation, which these deposits, by the way, we started finding them many decades ago, huge concentrations of carbon dioxide at the bottom of the ocean. And first, scientists felt that this was a very dangerous situation. What if the oil and gas industry was to disturb it? What if we had an underground earthquake? Would this stuff be released back in the atmosphere and we'd have a sudden injection of CO2? But what is found is that they're actually very stable. And that cold pressure, I'm sorry, the cold temperature and the high pressures actually keep the CO2 very stable. Um, Taking advantage of that natural um, occurrence is something that our province has that, for example, Alberta and Saskatchewan don't have. It's, you know, they're injecting it underground and they can store it. That's good. Um, But you, you don't have those natural features which give us that extra security. Fair enough. We'll see how this unfolds here because inside the world of carbon capture, storage and utilization, Three overlapping but distinctly different things, right? So complex, mm-hmm. obviously, and they'll choose to do it different ways in different areas. Uh, I don't know how on-site industry will be with investment because, look, let's be honest. That industry is about one thing and one thing only, and that's profit. Yes, the Absolutely. downstream usages yeah. in commercial and industrial applications, yeah. transportation, of course, they're fueling it downstream. But if they're not making money, they're not doing it. <laughs> the end. Well, you remember, you and I had a conversation a while ago about windfall profit tax legislation. Yeah. $34 billion right now is what the top five oil and gas companies in this country just declared for profit, $34 billion. And some jurisdictions are starting to look at ways that they could they could access some of that money, inject it back into your low- and middle-income uh, you know, societal supports to reduce the pressures. And um, you know that is there. It, it'll take a lot of political courage to do it. 
But, uh, yeah, this is not in any way in what I'm trying to propose here to support the oil and gas sector. But it is working with them uh, in a way that will actually make a lot of sense. It's very impressive, and I'm glad you did have Leslie James on a while ago because when I walked into her shop a little while ago and saw she's got an international team in place, uh, a lot of a lot of smart people, and now it's just, as she said to me, it's just a reverse of what they've been doing. So they've been looking at how they can extract oil uh, products, hydrocarbons, from from these same shales on our offshore. Now, using that same understanding of the porosity, the types of rock, and so on, what can we do to now store the CO2 that's being produced from that com- combustion of those hydrocarbons? So um, they're, they're, they're ready to go. And they're smart people, certainly mind. much smarter than Very I am. Uh, and you mentioned the windfall tax. You know, that $38 billion that you talked about in profit, that's just in the oil sands. That's not even across the rest of the country. It doesn't include our offshore at all. That's simply the oil sands number. And the windfall tax Look, I get it. Who gets to be the arbiter of how much profit constitutes excess? But in the world of uh, finance and life insurance and whatnot, there's a one-time 15% Canada dividend recovery fund that is in place already. So we've considered windfall tax. I'm not a proponent and or a critic of, Mm -hmm. but it's already happening. And that conversation is not going away. But again, who gets to be the arbiter of truth? Who gets to be the arbiter of what constitutes excess profit? Because, you know, there's a double-edged sword here. We bring in additional revenues, but we might be chasing capital investment away. So we've got to figure that out very carefully. Final word to you, Perry, before we go. Well, and, and on that point, Patty, you know, it's, again, the future generations are expecting us to do something about this. We have a big problem. We know what's causing the problem. We actually know what the solutions are. We just got to find the political will. And uh, a week or so ago in the House, I actually appealed to all parties and said, this has to get out of the politics of it. It has to be a joint effort governments, uh, opposition, we've all got to work together to really address this because, uh, as I said, our climate's warming. I'm sitting here in Goose Bay right now, and, uh, you know, I heard you mention earlier about Kane's Quest and some of the other, uh, you know, winter-dependent events that uh, used to be so reliable, and now they're not. And we're already seeing this dramatic change. 27 years from now, it's going to be six degrees warmer here in the wintertime if we don't get a wrestle on this. And while people are writing their emails telling me that uh, climate change is a hoax, what have you, I'll tell you who doesn't think it's a hoax, the oil and gas companies who have testified under oath that yep. they, they knew exactly what they were doing. So you can think about whatever you want, but the oil and gas companies themselves have acknowledged it under oath and fines to be paid and hopefully more in the future. Uh, good to have you on, Perry. Appreciate the time. Thanks, Patty. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Perry Trimper is the Liberal member for Lake Melville. Let's go to line six. Tom, you're on the air. Yes, you used to collect uh, all eyeglasses one time and send them away. Do they do that now? I believe the Lions Club still does it. Eh? I believe the Lions Club still collect uh, old eyeglasses. What Lions Club do? Yeah, they always did. Anyway, they had a partnership with Team Broken Earth, I know. And yes, they've been collecting eyeglasses for a long time. Because yeah, I got four pair, and I, I, I don't feel like throwing them in the garbage if, if someone can use them, you know. Yeah, I think they do a lot of repurposing work out at the Bishop's Falls Correctional Center between the lines and the inmates. There's also an opportunity to drop by for glasses at any of the Walmart vision centers, but I'd go to the Lions Club. Lions Club. Yeah. Uh, the Lions Club in Bay Roberts. Wherever you can find a Lions Club, they, they would be a partner in the program. Yeah, okay. Thanks very much. No problem, Tom. Bye. All the best. Bye-bye. All right, let's take another break. When we come back, mini splits. All right, don't go away. 
Welcome back to the show. Well, Forester's Point native Jacob Taylor had quite a start to the rock-solid dart horse Sunday evening, Steady Brook at Marble Mountain. Before he lost in the final, unfortunately, he had the opportunity to beat a really accomplished pro from England, Darren Webster. Join us on line number four is the man himself, Jacob Taylor. Good morning, Jacob. You're on the air. Hi. Congratulations. What a thrill. Thank you. Before we get into the Darren Webster match or what have you, tell us about your career professionally as a dart player. Well, uh, I've been... Uh I only played locally in Newfoundland for years, so when COVID hit, uh, I was online. I started playing online and uh, started winning some tournaments. And uh, this this guy, the bearded dark guy, was streaming my matches. And then uh, this lady, Sharon Butler, she uh, she called me one day and asked me if I want to be sponsored. And uh, from there, I've been traveling England, Germany, the U.S playing darts for the last three years. Very cool. So before Webster, have you had a victory, anything like that? Uh, well, I, I played the like, PDC players. Like Matt Campbell is a, is a PDC player from Ontario. Jeff Smith is a PDC player from uh, New Brunswick. I've played them before, and, and, and I've, I've won matches against them. So, yeah, I've, I've actually beaten professional dart players before, yes. Yeah, I mean, Smith, who you met in the final out of Mount Pearl. Yeah. So when it comes to playing guys like Campbell or playing against guys like Smith or Webster or Gilding, obviously it takes a bit of a different mindset, a different type of approach. Does it come with a different set of nerves or is darts as darts regardless of what you're playing? Uh, for me, I try to make it darts as darts and you just uh, you have to throw your darts. You don't, you don't throw someone else's. <laughs> Tell us about the match with Webster. I know it was a close one. It was six legs to five, and of course the format will be uh, first to six in these uh, playdowns in all the cities that you're or the towns you're competing in. Uh, walk yeah. us through the match. How to call? Well, uh, I went up first, and then he came back, and I believe he went to hit four three, and I went to hit five four, and then he tied up, and then yeah, he was sitting on double uh, double twenty, and I was on seventy two, and I I took it out with the third dart, and uh, the uh, the crowd went went uh, went a little bit crazy, I think, because of the hometown player, I guess. So, what's your roadmap for seventy-two finish? Triple 16, twenty, double six. 16. Well, sometimes I go twenty, twenty, sixteens, but that time I went sixteen, sixteen, double twenty. Yeah, <laughs> very cool. And so <laughs> you get that. How do you think that impacted your uh, participation in the final? Because obviously, with a win like that, your body's gone mad. Uh, once in a while, then I played the semifinal against the Bearded Duck guy, and I won that one. But uh, now Jess Smith just came out firing, and I just, uh, uh, he was too good for me to that, that night. <laughs> Are you going to get a chance to play against Gilding? Yes, tonight in Marystown. That's what I, I and I want to, uh, like I said, I want to promote this, the Rock Salt Dirt Tour and Warren Power. He's, he's put so much, uh, invested so much into this. It's, uh, I'm wanting y'all Newfoundland to really support this. I mean, if this goes over good this year, he's trying to get it again next year and maybe get different players every year. And and we need the support. Marble Mount was amazing. Gander was a little bit not what we expected. I'm we're, I'm thinking Marystown is going to be good, and we got two nights in St. John's. And uh, with the population, everybody come out, come out and support it. It's a it'll be a fun night. You'll see like. Andrew Gelling is number 19 in the world. Like, it's not a lot, of, a lot of times you're going to see that many good deck players okay, in a room. Yeah, we had Ward on the show last week or the week before to give it some attention. Yeah. Of course, we talked about your victory this morning. We'll give it another yeah. pump as you make your way into St. John's. So, gilding tonight, that's pretty exciting. Yeah, what's, the most, yeah. what's the most people you ever played in front of? That was it. 
<laughs> that was it right there on Marble Mountain that night. There was probably 300 people or so there. So not exactly the alley pally, but pretty cool. Pretty cool. I, I can't imagine what the alley pally would be like, but it must be amazing. I've long wanted to go to a dart competition at the Alexandra Palace, but I went to one at the Vicar in Dublin, and it was off the charts. It was just mind-boggling. It is. It's it's. Yeah, it gives you goosebumps <laughs> sometimes. So listen, good for you. So what's the future hold for you as a pro? So where do you play when you're over in the UK? So do you get to play at the uh, PDC well, events? Right now I'm not actually considered pro, I suppose. Oh. I play CDC, which is the, uh, the the North American Pro pro Tour, I suppose. It's it's like an affiliate of the PDC, but like a farm, farm system of the NHL, like, okay, you know what I'm saying? Fair ball. Uh, so, so like um, right now, like... Uh, in the CDC, we play four weekends, and the top Canadian gets to go to the Alley Pally. Unfortunately, the last three years, I've finished second. So, But anyway, it's, 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 a, it's a learning uh, curve. But uh, right now, I, I do the Modus Super Series, which is an amazing series. And I'm, I'm in England. You've got to go there for a week. It's in Portsmouth. And uh, they take 12 guys a week, and, and, and it's, it's some money involved in it. It's, it's good. Fair enough. And just very quickly before we let you go, so guys of your caliber, ripping off a 180 is not the cool feature would be if I ever hit one, which I never have, and I used to be a reasonable player. So let's talk about some of the unicorns. Have you ever had a 170 finish? Yes. You have? How many times? I, I don't know. <laughs> but more than one? Yes. Incredible. Nine darter? Two. Two nine darters? Yeah. Fabulous stuff. You know, double 12 for the uh, nine draft finish. Great stuff. Yeah. Uh, anything else you want to tell us about this morning, Jacob, before we let you go and make your way no, to Marystown? That's like I said. I'm trying to promote this rock solid that tour, like the, the group of guys that, that's doing this. and It's amazing, and they're hoping to do it every year. And so we want we want the support from the people for him to do that. And uh, come on out of land and support everybody. It's not that well. I guess it is a while ago that some of the biggest names in darts would come here. Not all the time, but repeatedly. I mean, Eric Bristow and John Lowe, they've been here playing darts. I believe playing down at the Stanley's Paul Bar at the Bella Vista right there on Torbay Road. So we've had the big dart players here. If this is successful, you never know. I mean, you might see the Bully Boys or the Van Garwins or who knows coming over. So, Jacob... That's that's the plan right now. Like, you can't... you got to start off Small and, and well, not small. Andrew Gelling is the number 19 in the world, so he's not small. But like most people look at Darts as, like you said, the bully boy, Van Gerwens, those guys, right? Do you got a favorite? I got a favorite. Do you have uh, any no, favorite those, really. those top pros? Not really. Uh, I like Johnny Clayton. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. I don't mind me a bit of Peter Wright. Uh, you know, and I, I think it's hard to say that people don't like Van Gerwen. It gets a bit exhausting when he was winning all the time, but I was a big uh, Phil the Power Taylor guy for a long time. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and like I said, this lady called me up and uh, and sponsored me, Sharon Butler. Actually, her, her, her husband is here playing in the tour, Larry Butler. So uh, that, 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 that company sponsors me, uh, Galaxy Barrels and, and Dirt Brokers. So, uh, yeah, they're, 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 they're amazing people. And actually... The dark people, the players, the, the dark world. There's some amazing people there that, uh, that that you you get to meet. Yeah, you also got a PDC commentator on hand, Kirk Bevins, who people would be familiar with. And and he's amazing to listen to. I mean, just to come out and listen to him call the scores. It's worth it's worth the show. <laughs> it's great stuff. It's great to have you on the show, Jacob. I enjoyed the chat. Good luck. Okay, thank you. All the best.
Right. There you go. Jacob Taylor takes out, I mean, Darren Webster. It was a big name in darts. He's got a trophy case full of trophies playing as a professional in Europe, so that's pretty great. One more time, they're in Marystown tonight at the Marystown Hotel and Conference Center from 1 to 4. You get to go meet the players, get an autograph, maybe take a few shots against one of the top guys. Then at 7 p.m. to 9, or pardon me, to 10.30 p.m., they put for the eight dart players, first to six leg matches, then they get a quarter, a semi, and then the finals. At the end of every event, an encore prize will be drawn, letting an audience member who bought a ticket play against that night's champion. How cool would that be? You get a game against Gilding or Jacob Taylor. All right, let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, appreciate the patience. Tom's here to talk about many splits. And Mayor Tony Keats, the mayor of Dover, is a finalist for the World Mayor Competition. He also wants to talk about the new municipal legislation. Don't go away. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration, shows, and new music. Tune in to Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Okay, let's go to line number five. Good morning, Tom. You're on the air. Good morning, Pay. Good morning to you. A uh, couple of things. There was a research article in Science uh, in October talking about the collapse of the Alaskan snow crab industry and uh, the studies have indicated that um, basically, well, almost 11 billion snow crabs just disappeared from the eastern Bering Sea off the Alaskan coast. And and there was all kinds of theories about it and, and there still is some debate, but, but basically it looks like it was caused by marine heat waves and the fact that generally there's sea ice in the Bering Sea that when it melts, the colder water sinks to the bottom. And because that wasn't happening, because there's been very little sea ice in that neck of the woods, um, uh, what they've observed is that the um, metabolism, because it was warmer down there, significantly warmer than normal, although it was within the range that the snow crabs could still live, um, it sped up their metabolism, which then resulted in their requirement for food. Their caloric intake went up like about three times. And then for some other reason, they all congregated in smaller areas. Their range decreased. And the end result, they think, is they just basically starved to death. And so, you know, that now what the, the studies now believe that by 2040 that this that type of event will happen one out of every three years. Yeah, I read it. Uh, so they're talking about the fact that there's been serious fluctuation in the strength of stock for the Alaskan crab over the years. In 2018, they had a big resurgence. They thought they were back in business. The value of the fishery the year prior was about $200 million. But of course, with 10 or 11 million uh, snow, or pardon me, Alaskan crab gone, disappeared, then of course decimated again. Yeah, and it, you know, it's one of these things where because their metabolism increased, they probably multiplied faster, hence the reason that they might have had a banner year. But then uh, they basically just, for for a whole bunch of reasons, and, and this is one of these unintended consequences of man-caused climate changes, especially given the fact that the ocean absorbs 80% of the heat that we're generating, that we just don't know. And, you know, so again, another motivation, you know, to pick up on what Perry Tramper was saying, another motivation for us to be making changes is we rely on obviously the ocean for a lot of our prosperity and um you know just just to throw it in there that you know what happens in alaska can happen in newfoundland just as easily sure and just something silly as an aside is the representative of the alaska department of fish and games a guy named ben daly spells his name like i do very few of us spell it without an e (laughs) 
Not that it has anything to do with anything, but there you go. Uh, just a couple of quick things. Um, a lot of times we hear talking about the wind turbines only lasting 25 years. I mean, I just want to point out the fact that obviously the, the foundations, the monopiles, the transmission lines, the roads, and a lot of the infrastructure that gets put there obviously will last way longer than 25 years and potentially the maintenance of those turbines, assuming that we continue to rely on them for whatever purpose. You know, it's not just a symbol. I think they're talking about the gearboxes and maybe the uh, the blades needing to replace based on stress and stuff, but that obviously doesn't mean everything needs to be. Uh, and then, uh, you know, another thing, uh, natural gas, and people talk about it being this transition gas, and I just want to point out some universally accepted facts is, is that natural gas is 50% of a greenhouse gas, produces 50% greenhouse gas as coal does at source when you burn it. So, so when people say coal is really dirty and natural gas is cleaner, well, that is actually true as long as there's no leakage because natural gas, which really should be, there's a move to call it, rename it fossil gas because there's really, I mean, I guess everything is natural, but probably greenwash is a little bit. If you have leakage of, of natural gas, it's almost all, it's almost all methane. And methane is, depending on how you measure, between 40 and 90 times more of a warming gas, depending on how many years you measure over 20 years, it's 80 to 90, over 100 years, it's 30 to 40% of a warming gas as CO2. So if you have any, if you have leakage, you only have to have 0.2% leakage of natural gas. For natural gas, that's through its whole process. That would be uh, production, processing, transportation, consumption. If you have 0.2% leakage of natural gas, it's the same as coal in its impact on the warming of the planet. And you know, just some, you know, according to the uh, the Amer- U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, they have two to three uh, percent leakage in the states. Alberta is 4.6% leakage, and in British Columbia, it's almost twice that. So the Pembrian Basin down in in Texas, in that area, that's like 8% leakage. So you know, one of the challenges Perry alluded to as well is that you we unfortunately there's no easy solutions to um, to reducing how much we warm our planet. By burning fossil fuels, you know, nothing is simple, unfortunately. All of these transitional fuels, for me, it's all proximity to end usage. I mean, if you produce natural gas, compress it or liquefy it, and then ship it across the ocean for use, which have less emissions at the end user, but we've just contributed more regarding transportation. So same thing with carbon capture. If it's just about capturing here and pumping it down here into depleted oil wells, that's one thing. But importing it from elsewhere will come with emissions as well. So all of these things, same with hydrogen. It's where the product is uh, created and where it's used, because we'll talk about offshore Newfoundland being very quote-unquote eco-friendly regarding emissions compared to other oil fields, notably the oil sands, but that doesn't uh, change downstream emissions. So unless we incorporate that in the conversation, we're probably big on doing some uh, greenwashing, as they call it, but fair enough, Tom. Yeah, the the other thing to realize is at one point you actually went to the drugstore to buy gasoline, you know, back when cars were like uh, just an anomaly. And and so as you potentially green the the entire supply chain, because oil... Oil, the fossil fuel industry basically created all their supply chain running on fossil fuels. So, you know, you could you can envision a situation where the boats run on the ships run on methane. Sorry, not on methane on uh, ammonia, for example, which is what they they think is one solution to the marine traffic. So, you know, and if you can produce that greenly, if it's green 
ammonia, which is in theory what they're going to produce. They make hydrogen, then they convert it to methane by adding nitrogen to it. And, you know, and then as, as the trucks to transport them, you, you can envision a situation where, where yes, you could sensibly transport um, carbon dioxide from at source from from places where we do need to to still continue to burn it. Anyway, so and and the other thing with um, I'm going to try and get around to to um, heat pumps, but to, to looking at a measurement of of heat. Uh, universal gigajoules, so so people have perspective. And, and when you compare apples and apples, uh, it takes around 277 kilowatt hours to pr- produce a gigajoule, and in Newfoundland that would cost around 34, 36 dollars. You'd need to burn 26 liters of oil to produce the same amount, which at present price would be around 35 dollars, but that could go up as high as 42 or 43 dollars. So. There's not a huge difference between heating your house with straight resistance electricity and oil at the present cost, but as it goes up, and if there was carbon tax on it, obviously it would be more. But with mini splits, and mini splits have been proven to be the most energy efficient way. They're even they're even more energy efficient than a central heat pump um, would cost, depending on how cold it is outside, between twelve and twenty dollars to do the same amount. So so apples and apples. If you can afford it without any subsidies at all, you'll fairly quickly pay for your minister. Like I know you have one in your house, and I imagine it probably provides a significant portion of your heating when you read it for the whole year. Have, have you figured that out? Cost recovery is going to be about 30 months. Right. Plus, on top, obviously, you get the benefit of the air conditioning and all that stuff. Oh, look, even just for those humid days in the summer, it's worth its weight in gold. I'm not built for that type of temperature and that type of humidity. So, yes, a quick blast of heat and a winter morning is very much welcomed. But it's that dry setting that I think is just invaluable to me. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of benefits. My father did the same thing, installed one, and and basically went from burning 5,000 liters of oil to last year burning 200 liters of oil. And it's just... It's an incredible savings. But, you know, one of the challenges is, is the people who don't want to change, obviously, keep stacking up the reason not to. The insurance is a challenge. There's no debate. But but in most cases, the different programs that are out there, which unfortunately are way more complicated than they should be. But as you indicate, the companies who are really motivated to make money off you will help you, the good companies. I know you gave out a number yesterday. I, I, one of the biggest challenges I think that we all face is that Everybody's confused, and everybody uh, is kind of like boiling frogs. And, and uh, you know, when I hear Barry was on earlier, and, and you know, our healthcare and all these these challenges, I, I just want to encourage people to look at the present and realize that, that it doesn't really matter ha- matters what happened in the past. Although you can see a trend, everything is changing very, very quickly, and you can either be, you know, petrified by it, or you can, and you know, freeze freeze in place, or you can try and just. You know, think what can I do? Just you know, sit down with a piece of paper and say, well, realistically, this the price of energy is going to go up, and these are the measures I need to do, and 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 kind of create your own little narrative, their own little story of what you need to do to be able to not be a victim, to go from being a you know a victim to someone who's kind of taking control, and you know, and and all these things when you break them down into little bite-sized pieces, like eating an elephant, they're not so bad, but the longer we put it off hard it is on people and in particular on the vulnerable people and you know and all of us who kind of have half a clue we owe it to all those people to kind of take the time to sit down with them and share our experience and 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 encourage them to to try and 
not be a victim, as I said, and, and, and make different decisions. I appreciate the time, uh, Tom. Thanks for the call. Thank you, everyone. Take care. Oh, you too. Bye-bye. All right, uh, break time it is. You stay right there, Mayor Tony Keats, who is the mayor of Dover. He wants to talk about the new municipal legislation, and also we'll touch base on the fact that he's one of the finalists for the World Mayor Competition. All right, don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one, say good morning to the mayor of the town of Dover. That's Tony Keats. Mayor Keats, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? That's kind. How about yourself? I'm doing pretty good. I'm babysitting the head call now. Uh, I was there last week or the week yeah. before. That yeah, was terrible. Uh, before we get into the new legislation, the Towns and Local Service Districts Act, what's going on with the World Mayor Competition? Like, what is it all about? How'd you get involved? What makes you a finalist? All those bare bones details. Yeah, well, the the, the World Mayor uh, Foundation was started in 2004, I do believe, and it's for to promote and to uh, celebrate uh, communities and mayors from around the world who uh, who works hard not only for their community but. Uh, for the betterment of uh, others, not only in, in, in their province or country, but from, you know, around the world. It's, it's like a, a pat on the back, I guess, and, and, and just to say, you know, you're doing a great job. And and, uh, and to be on that list, Patty, is uh, is remarkable. Um, the town manager came to me um, and said that, you know, she's seen this and she'd like to nominate me along with uh, council. Uh, you know, it was it was let's say it was almost a joke at the time because you know coming from a small community, uh, world mayor is you know we looked at bigger centers, uh, you know being selected, uh, and to be on that 92 at the beginning was was a surprise, and then to go down to the list of 25 and people voting and, and just going in and reading the comments that people left, um, you know, about how they felt about me and, and why I should win. And to be selected then and go down to the nine is, 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 is remarkable. And, and, you know, all the positive feelings uh, just came out. And, and just to know that uh, people thought so much about me. Well, good on you. So it's a voting process. Now, from nine, what's the next go-to? Is it like down to three, or how is it going to work from here on in? No, so from the nine now, we have to, it's our turn now to, uh, to you know, show why we, you know, what we do and why we do what we do. Uh, so it's a, i got to do a, um, a 1,500 to 2,500 uh, word essay, and then i got to do a six-question answer interview. And out of that, then they select um, the world mayor. All good. So uh, if people want to vote, can you do it like once a day, or what does it take? Where do I have to go if I want to cast a vote your way? Yeah, but the voting the voting process is over now. Okay. <clears throat> so the, the voting process is what selected the nine. So then uh, from the nine down now we got to um, we got to prove our own selves and, and put in you know why we should be selected. Fair enough. Uh, congratulations and good luck. Let's get into the legislation. So you know there's some good examples where communities have been working collaboratively to try to get things done. I yeah. think that's a good example up on the northern peninsula with the mayors of Radley, Byram, Anglee, Mainbrook, and Conch. They know that with a population of around 2,000 in all four communities, unless they're pulling the rope in the same direction, we're going to see a very quick demise potentially of their communities uh, let's start with the the legislation as it doesn't force amalgamation but it allows opportunities maybe for more cooperation what are some of your initial takeaways yeah and and you know that that's one of the good things and we've been asking that for years and especially you know even before i was i was the president of municipalities uh newfoundland and labrador and, and now after you know serving in the role just as mayor of the town of dover we you know we we've came together in, in the communities around Hoss here the six communities and uh, you know we've reformed the, uh, the joint council uh, for those purposes is to you know is to better our communities uh, you know not not to spend so much money on doing stuff within our own community but sharing the resources
resources and and what we got to offer amongst all of us uh, you know pulling together is 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 the way it goes when you know when regionalization you know uh, fell apart and came off the table uh, we looked at it as you know we we got to do something ourselves and and to you know evident in the new act and and to go forward is is something that we've been asking for for a long time so you know inside the uh, the world of some of the things that are uh amendments in this legislation, the fact that we still had some 40 communities operating with poll taxes yeah. is remarkable in 2023. It is. It is. Um, you know, that, that's one of the things I think, you know, um, M&L has been asking for and, and, and the towns has been asking for is is some kind of uh, a, a way to get away from the pool tax. And, and I think, you know, in this one now they're going to phase it out over a three-year period. Uh, we, we collected pool tax in the past, um, you know, and I think we got rid of it around eight to ten years ago. And the reason for it is because, you know, it's a very hard, uncollectible tax at times, and, and it just puts a burden on your final, you know, finances when you do up your uh, when you do up your uh, your budget. It's money sometimes that we can't collect. Uh, it, it it throws out the, the figures, and, and where our communities have, they have balanced budgets, you know, it, it's it's not the clear picture of your community. Yeah. You know, I've heard some negative feedback on this particular legislation. I'm having a devil of a time finding where that real problematic issues lie. But even if we talk about autonomy and the complexity and the bureaucracy and the red tape, removing some 11 ministerial approvals from processes just makes a lot of sense to me. It doesn't change the cost sharing formula, which in and of itself is a bit of a problem for some smaller communities. But what other than poll tax and uh, autonomy inside is something that you like or things that you don't like or still have questions? Questions about? Yeah, well, you know, it's it, it, it's a big it's a big uh, it's a big act, right? It's it's a lot of things inside it. I'm still reading through, uh, but you know, empowering the, our communities is is one of the things that you know I look at because there's nothing no worse, uh, uh, Patty, than than almost going like you're almost going to your parents every time you need to do something, and and now we're you know we're rolled up. And I've always said, and I, I think I'll pretty well take this to my grave, is that you know. Towns and municipalities are the first level of government, not the third level of government. We're the closest ones to the people, and we do deserve to be treated that way. And we can't go to announcements and government announcements, federal or provincial, you know, not knowing what the announcement is going to be if we're not sitting at that table. And that's one of the things that, you know, we've been asking for and I've been asking for for years is to make sure that if anything gets done, make sure that we're there to, you know, put our two cents in and, and say, you know, yes, we agree that this should be done or not done. And I think that's one of the things that I'm looking for uh, moving forward within the sack and uh, even afterwards. You know, as you rightfully point out, is the first level of government, and I would suggest for many of your day-to-day concerns, is probably the most important level of government. Now, not to say that healthcare and all the rest isn't important, because obviously it is, but some very natural things that people get concerned about, you know, drinking water, the state of the roads, garbage collection, things that the municipality does. You know, there's such a piece as a municipal operating grant. Not everybody gets it. I think that the federal government would do themselves a great service if there was more. I believe the divvy for municipal municipalities is eight cents per dollar of federal tax? I think six cents. Think. Six cents? Well, okay, fair enough. Yeah. If you made that six eight or that six ten, some yeah. of the things that people pester members of parliament about it, members of the House of Assembly about would be attended to because you'd have friggin' money. Exactly. Exactly. We wouldn't be going back to the coffers every time we needed something, especially when it comes to emergencies and stuff. You know, when, yeah. when we're locked into to a balanced budget, it, it, our ends are tied and we you know we can't get stuff done. Uh, you know, but like you said, you know, being the first level of government, you know, means that, you know, we 
we are growing up. It's, it's, it's time that, you know, we, we be at that table and we get stuff done. Um, you know, like I, like I said, you know, we just started this, you know, the joint councils again. And that's, that's a big thing for us. You know, we, we need to come together. Over the years, you know, we've been doing things on our own and, and, and we just can't survive that way. Uh, last one. So not every municipality would necessarily have a housing or homelessness problem. A lot of municipalities very well might. But when you hear from the premiers uh, just yesterday, their letter about the housing strategy, access to the housing accelerator fund, MNL is quite clear. Many small communities just do not have the human resources and or the uh, maybe the tech savvy or whatever the case may be to compile all the data to make the application. That's right. That's so right. the housing minister, Fraser, is making bilateral deals with the Halifaxes, Hamiltons, Hal- uh, St. John's of the world, whereas Quebec got a lump sum for the province to deal directly with their municipalities. Is that the best way forward? Because bidding against each other, stressing out limited staff and or volunteers is certainly not the answer as far as I can tell. No, and, and it's one of the ways forward. You know, we can see that. Uh, you know, I, I think President Cody was on with you recently talking about the same thing and, and our institute when it comes to doing some of the applications because it's a long process. You know, if we had somebody there that can, you know, really help us out to, to get those applications done, get them in, uh, you know, we know where the problems are. We, you know, we, we've been telling everybody, you know, federal and provincial governments that we need this fixed. But, you know, getting it done, Patty, it takes time, and especially when you're dealing with the bureaucrats within government too, right? And then, of course, in the world of business, there's, it's an option now for municipalities to yep. pick a class of business they want to tax, use tax incentives to encourage or to incentivize business to come to their community. So hopefully this is a roadmap via legislation that will be beneficial. I guess the devil's in the details. I'm still like you. Right. I'm still going through it. Yep. 146 pages back to back, exactly. front and back. So there's a lot inside it. Yep. Last words go to you, Tony, well, before we well, go. You know, I'll, I'll just going to uh, touch on that. You know, the economic development part is a big thing. I mean, when it, you know, when, when red boards went by the side, because red boards used to do a lot for communities uh, in our province, especially rural communities. Uh, you know, when we lost them, we lost a lot of, of uh, brain power and a lot of, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, ways to get applications and, and, and people just to help us out. So, you know, getting that and, and, and getting someone there to help us out or, or, you know, even reducing some of the red tape, like you said before, uh, with these applications, it, you know, would be a great help. Yeah, so whether it be, you know, hiring a uh, economic development officer or a housing coordinator, sure. certainly there's upside uh, for communities on those two fronts. Good to have you on, the Mayor Keats, and good luck with the World Mayor Competition. No, th- uh, thanks, Patty. Uh, thanks for, uh, for um, you know, big shout-out on Friday. I, I appreciate uh, you and, and many others. Thank you. Uh, thanks a lot. Have a good day, Patty. My pleasure. All the best. Take care. All right, bye-bye. Before we get to the news, will we get the event pr- promotion in, David? What do you think? No? All right. You're not the boss of me. Can we remind folks of that? <laughs> Live here on the radio. <laughs> Let's get to the news right on time. When we come back, plenty of time left for you. Don't go away. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Manuel, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing okay. Thanks for asking. How about you? Yeah, well, I'm 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 good. good. Uh, no, Patty, uh, I want to thank you for taking the call there. Um, I'm calling you about a very important matter with a water situation uh, in the town of Georgebrook Mill. I've been four months now lobbying the government and the town to extend the water line 1,200 feet to accommodate uh, this family and in some cases, their grandchildren. Now, the Board of Health uh, got it turned down. They turned it down, E. coli in the well, 
Um, we had the independent uh, uh, analyst on in St. John's, and it came back also turned down with high levels of different things in the water. So I met with the town yesterday and our MHA for Balavesta, Craig Party. Now, what they suggested, uh, they suggested that uh, he'd install some kind of tubs in his garage and the fire department would fill it up every um, 10 days or whatever. Uh, I'm kind of concerned over if he did that and uh, health reasons would be behind that. But anyway, uh, we applied, the town applied for emergency grant, which the government said no, uh, they wouldn't give them the emergency grant. So uh, what they did then, they applied for a municipal grant, which we're not going to get this year anyway. So that was okay. I mean, the town tried in that respect. So uh, how uh, I'm kind of at a roadblock to figure out what we're going to do next. And, uh, Patty, I don't really know. I've, I've really tried to help this family, and but I don't know. Uh, I don't really know where to go. I'll be honest with you. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of come to a, a bump in the road. But. So other than the extension of the line, what other options are actually out there? Well, the only option will be out there, I guess, Patty, is a some kind of a filtering system for now. Okay. Uh, to put in a filter system, which is not cheap. And uh, uh, so um, whatever the the town, uh, the family does, you never do it all on your own. So that's what I'm telling. Well, if it's been shot down at the various levels, as you describe, I'm scratching my head to even think of where to next, to be honest. No, I don't know either, Patty, and I don't know why, uh, why uh, they couldn't approve a uh, emergency grant. Uh, and now the, the other thing is now, Patty, I know you're very knowledgeable on this, so quickly I'll, I'll try to explain it to you. I asked the government if was any money there in our gas tax. And she clicked on a few buttons, she come back and she said, yes, there's money there in the gas tax. So what that told me, that the town of Georgiebrook Mountain could apply under the gas tax. Now, the town is not agreeing that that's what they should do, and I think Mr. Party agreed to it too. That uh, if we apply under the gas tax now, just going to cut them short uh, for monies next year. But that's the likely outcome, uh, for sure. So I don't think they're wrong on that front because certain pots of money they might do uh, do something in the short term, but it might have a long term implication, which I think will happen if this if, if that's the avenue that the town went. Yeah, and the thing is, I informed uh, Mr. Party that, uh, well, if they got money there now for the gas tax, uh, they'll also get more money next year. So if you don't need that money now, and then more come anyway. Yeah, gas tax money is really just general coffers. The gas tax was created to do road and bridge work, right? And so up until this year where they spent a record amount of money on roads, every year the gas tax was more than the road work contracts. So there's always been just the money flows back into general coffers for general spending as opposed to being set aside for whether it be emergency grants or the like because once they spend the money on the road work, then it's just general coffers for the gas tax when it had a very specific reason as to why it's in place in the first place. Yeah, and we don't need to spend money on our roads because we don't own the roads going to the town of Georgia. Melton, give it on to the province. Right, yeah. 
And the thing is, Paddy, um, I don't know. Uh, I guess the family has got to the point now. She told me in the meeting that they may have to move out. Uh, I priced the cost. I had a price done on the cost to get from uh, the end of the line there now to to the family. And uh, the guy that gave me the price on it, he uh, he kind of was a bit lenient. And uh, the price came in for twenty eight thousand dollars. So that's what you know, twenty eight thousand dollars against our help. Now, uh, what do you say for that? Well, it's certainly out of reach for most. Yeah, I don't know, Patty. I'm I'm got to a point now that uh, I don't know uh, what to say, what to do about it. I mean, I've tried, eh? I really have. Well, sounds like it. Uh, if I can come up with some sort of potential next next approach or next steps. I've got your number, so if myself or anyone listening to the program has some suggestions about what we can do to try to figure this out, and I'm happy to give it some thought after the show as well, but we do have your contact info, and if anything comes over across my desk or email or in my own noggin, I'll get back to you, Manuel. And Penny, I'd like to also mention that I took this to the people. Uh, I spent all day and part of the night. I went and got a petition signed. And um, for the town to extend the water. I mean, the people have spoken have signed that petition. I got between 50 and 60 names, I guess. I could have probably got a lot more, but... And those people are asking me now, have the town put the water down yet? So, what can I say, Patty? I can only say no. Yeah, that's cart and horse kind of stuff. Yes. But uh, if you can... Uh, yeah, I appreciate your thought on this, and uh, I really thank you for your talk. And uh, if something comes across your desk, I don't know if we could go back to the government for emergency funding. I don't know. I think you can apply for emergency funding uh, pretty much any time. You can, yep. So I don't know if it would make a difference <clears throat> if I contact the Premier's office or someone on this and we reapply, or have the town reapply. And, Patty, I think the town have really tried her too, you know. Their, their hands are kind of, uh, I mean, they, they play for those brands. And... Um, and I talked to the government. I talked to Kim Carley, and I think you know her. Yep. And uh, I talked to Kim about this. And uh, all Kim said was, well, we didn't meet the requirements. Well, the potential is down there, Patty, for more houses to be hooked on if there was a water line down there. Yeah, just for one upfront cost, very minimal to branch off once the line is established. So if I can come up with something manual, I will indeed get back to you, sir, for sure. But it'll only cost you time to reapply for emergency funding, which, of course, comes with some human resources, if there are staffers in the town or what have you. But I would do it. I would do it, too. And uh, I think that's one uh, thing we could get done here. We could have the town reapply. I'll lobby uh, whoever I need to lobby to help and uh, who knows something good might happen keep me in the loop I will Patty I'm, 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 we're waiting on our roads remember I was talking to you about the roads yep. uh, our roads got approved to be done and we're waiting on the contractor to come to do them and uh, I thank you very, you very much for your advice on that I know you helped us a nice bit no worries at all I appreciate the call this morning keep me in the loop yeah and you have a nice day now you too sir Talk to you soon, Manuel. Okay. All right. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Before we get to the break, an upcoming event on line two. Tina, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Thanks for having me. No problem. 
I'm here talking about addiction and recovery again. We're all sitting here in the middle of a drug epidemic, and it's impacting every one of us in the province. It's all fine and dandy to kind of complain about it all the time and be victims of our circumstances. But um, there's those of us who are springing into action and doing some really great things. So since Ben died, I guess we've done some really major, amazing things um, have come to light. And we have a huge event coming up called Recovery Revolution. Um, so we did that. We, we have done a whole bunch of different things since Ben died, but the first thing was incorporated a nonprofit. Um, and that nonprofit is, is um, based on helping people get into recovery. And it's, it's um, we have a website called Guardians of Recovery uh, Foundation. And that's where it's all happening. Some of the things that we've been able to accomplish is create a GoFundMe where we've raised funds to help with sober living homes. And that's a dream and a vision that we have. And we're, we've also built this event, the Recovery Revolution Show. So it's in memory of Ben, but it's also an important show that transforms pain of loss from addiction into purposeful vision and hope for recovery. So people who are coming to the show will have a, a unique, spectacular experience. Um, they'll be inspired by a star-studded lineup of performers sharing their tales and their tunes about addiction and recovery. And so all the performers in there are either in recovery themselves or they've written songs about recovery. They have family members with mental health and addictions. And so it's really just taking the tragedy addiction out of the dark and bringing it into the light and transforming it into a mainstream conversation to eradicate the stigma of addiction and just get the the whole thing out there in a way that uses the arts as a way to kind of create a culture of recovery if you will so tell us about the event where than when yeah it's uh, so it's happening on november 21st Doors open at 8 p.m. at Gower Street United Church. So we've sold 130 tickets so far, but there's lots left for anybody listening who'd like to come. And they can get tickets at guardiansofrecovery.foundation, which is our website. And we have amazing performers lined up. George Maswell, he was used to be the mayor on the, the musical Come From Away. Um, Jeremy Dix, who's gone through his own recovery journey. Sarah James Furlong, Damien Follett, Shanda Murphy, and Judith Morrissey. These are all amazing Newfoundland performers who are super committed to you know, the whole conversation of healing and recovery. It's just going to be a beautiful night where we celebrate and elevate people who are in in recovery and and really wanting to heal. Good luck with the event. How how much are the tickets, Tina? Uh, The tickets are $25, and all the proceeds are going towards our healing homes and programs. So, yeah, we would love to have everybody there. Good luck with it. Thanks for the time this morning. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, final break of the morning. Don't go away. And welcome back to the program. Let's go to Landon Five. Say good morning to Tom Making with the St. John's Retired Citizens Association. Good morning, Tom. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for taking my call. Happy to do it. 
Uh, I just want to let your listeners know that tomorrow evening, Wednesday, November the 8th, at 7 p.m., we're going to have a commemorative uh, get-together to honor Remembrance Day. Our agenda is going to include songs from uh, the Great War era, era and other songs, as well as poetry and readings, and just a bit of reflection to honor our past and present uh, uh, military uh, for the sacrifices they have given and for giving us what we have today, allowing us to live the way we do today. Our address is 10 Bennett Avenue. Uh, the number to call to uh, register would be 746-2555. At 746-2555. There's limited space, and uh, we'd love to have as many people there as possible, and it's free. We do this on a regular basis. Terrific. Uh, who do you have performing some of the wartime songs? Because some of them are really quite memorable, you know, the We'll Meet Again and Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy and Run Rabbit Run, those types of songs. Who's performing? We have an in-house band that does this. Okay. And uh, it's a group of, again, volunteers, because we're not an entirely a volunteer organization, and uh, they'll perform many different songs uh, throughout the evening, and a lot of uh, a lot of poetry, and a lot of uh, reflection back on uh, uh, fathers and brothers and so forth who have gone to the wars, and who are presently serving, and gives everybody an opportunity just to reflect on what sacrifices they've made for us. And uh, just to bring it back into mind all the time. And as a province, the enormous sacrifice that the province has offered or endured. Exactly, exactly. The second thing, Patty, on November the 22nd at our club, we have a physiotherapist coming in, Jen Shears, and she's going to do a presentation to seniors on motion, on balance, on proper exercises uh, to do in the home. Uh, and it's coming into a prime time because we're coming into winter, and this is going to restrict many seniors from getting outside. And uh, it, it'd be a great help to everybody to be able to maintain their balance, especially as you age. The balance kind of disappears on you, and your vision kind of gets a bit blurry as well. So it'd be a great opportunity to teach people how to exercise properly, how to move properly, and, and how to keep your health and how to stay healthy as we go forward. Again, it's free. It's open to members and to the general public. And uh, if you wish to uh, to sign up for it, uh, the email address is super Susan Quinton, S-U-S-A-N-Q-U-I-N-T-O-N, at hotmail.com. Jennifer Shears is terrific. She's a bundle of life and energy. She's a great friend of ours, of our family, to be honest. We live in the same neighborhood. Oh, super, because uh, she's done it before at our club, and the folks that went to this were just flabbergasted. They just thoroughly enjoyed it, and that's why we want to do this a couple of times a year to be able to offer to seniors an opportunity to get out of the house, number one. Number two, just to learn about proper exercise and balance and to, to extend that health and to stay out of hospitals. <laughs> Because like it or not, at a certain age, a slip and fall for me is different than a slip and fall for someone who's 70 or 80. So those types of informative programs are terrific. And Jennifer has done a ton of work to help people rehabilitate as well as a physiotherapist. She's terrific. Absolutely. I agree 100%, Patty. And my last comment, Patty, because I know your, your time is limited. You, uh, we, we called earlier about our membership drive that we had back in September. <laughs> and we, we, we 
reached an unbelievable number of members to the point where I think we're about 330 members right now. Wow. We've never been this high before, so I want to thank you for your help in, uh, in helping to achieve this because it helps seniors. It helps us get out of the house the camaraderie just belonging to an association or a club it, it just helps it helps keep people healthy 100 percent. there's nothing quite like a little bit of company and shared life experience it's good for the soul so what other things can people experience if they join up your association well, as we mentioned before, we have uh, two different exercise programs. We have a NIA, which is a low-impact exercise program, and we have a full exercise program. Again, we, we, we bring people in who are professionals to do this. It, it was great at one time to have people come in and do show people how to exercise, but not having the background in that in that field. So we've gone out, we've, we've hired people to be able to do this for us, and we offer those classes. We have line dancing, we have art classes, we have bridge. We have we just started an evening of uh, crib and a good game of growl. So and then we we got tremendous results from that. We have guitar lessons, we have guitar jams, jams that take place on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and that's probably our biggest biggest part of our organization is guitar lessons and actually getting up and playing. You know, just playing with a group. Uh, to give an example, we have about fifty to fifty-five people that come in on Wednesday morning and you know guitar jam and we have people get up and sing and it's a great a great relaxing time for us for everybody it's it sounds terrific and who doesn't like a good game of growl absolutely <laughs> there's not a newfoundlander that doesn't like a good game of growl or a good game of crib 100 percent. myself my son jack play crib almost every day yeah and are you allowed to go five uh, 25 without the five uh, now that's a good question. It depends on the game. Fair <laughs> enough. It depends <laughs> on the players. Slam for, I just go slam for game, you know. Yeah, and no uh, slam. That's amateur hour. <laughs> <laughs> good to have you on, Tom. Good luck with the event. Thank you very much, Patty. Thanks for the time. I appreciate it. My pleasure. All the best. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Tom Making with the St. John's Retired Citizens Association. And some of those old wartime songs, when we do the shows uh, when we're on Out of the Fog, our go-to performer, and if you've ever heard her do some of these wartime tunes, uh, Natalie Noseworthy. I mean, absolutely terrific. The performance, her voice. The look, the dress, I mean, Natalie knows we're the absolutely top quality. I'm not sure if she's listening to the program this morning, but we were grand old friends back in the old out-of-the-fog days. All right, final check-in on the Twitter box where VOCM Open Line follows her. Email address is openline.vocm.com, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.